This is Commission President Ryan Calkins convening the regular meeting of July 12, 2022. The time is 10.30 a.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters Building here at Pier 69 in the Commission Chambers and virtually via Microsoft Teams. Present with me today are Commissioners Cho, Felleman, Hasegawa, and Muhammad, who are currently gathered in the Executive Session Room awaiting the opening of the public meeting. We'll now recess into the executive session to discuss two items regarding litigation or potential litigation or legal risk per RCW 4230-110-1I for approximately 55 minutes, and we'll reconvene into public session at noon. Thank you. Thank you. We are in recess. All right. This is Commission President Ryan Calkins reconvening the regular meeting of July 12th, 2022. The time is 12.12 after a little bit of a technical difficulty getting started this afternoon. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters building and virtually through Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, can you please do a roll call of all commissioners in attendance? Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Beginning with Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Felleman. Present. Is joining us via Teams. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Present. Thank you. You do have a full commission here today. Due to the continued virtual component of participation for our meetings, we have staff, external partners, and members of the public who may be participating on their personal devices or from their phones today. We've made arrangements to accommodate this virtual format. Later, we'll, we'll take public comment from people who are participating by teams, as well as from those in person who have signed up to speak. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you are a member of the Commission or Executive Director participating virtually, or you are a member of staff in a presentation and are actively addressing the Commission. Members of the public addressing the Commission may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak. For anyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. When you are recognized to speak, you will press the button for your microphone to be audible and we'll press it again to silence it when not actively speaking. All of the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting. We thank you for that. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method since there is a virtual component to the meeting, so it is clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. To be equitable, I ask that all commissioners wait to be recognized before speaking. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people, with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please stand or join us for the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Stands one nation, indivisible, indivisible, indivisible. liberty, majestic for all. The first item of business today is approval of the agenda. Are there any motions to rearrange the orders of the day, or any items to remove from the consent agenda for separate discussion? Yes. Go ahead, Commissioner. Um, I move to rearrange the order of the day by moving item 4A to new business um, to be taken up uh, prior to item 10A. Um, I'm making this motion to keep the subject matters together in discussion. Is there a second? Seconded. All right. Uh, barring any objections, that 
uh, agenda, we, we don't need to vote on that. Uh, any other, is that correct, Clerk Hart? No objection. No objection. Okay. If no there objection. was no objection, then you can move on, yeah. Okay. All right, any other uh, motions to move items on the agenda or remove anything? Okay. With that, commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda? So moved. Second. All right. The motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to approval of the agenda as presented or as amended? Hearing none, the agenda is approved as amended. All right. Uh, so now we skip to... The executive director's report is that correct michelle thank you <laughs> all right over to you executive director metric thank you president Calkins. good afternoon commissioners first off i want to thank you all for your leadership and voicing the port of seattle support for reproductive rights i look forward to your consideration of a proclamation today supporting comprehensive reproductive health care it's important to let the community know where we stand at a time when these rights are under attack in so many states later in your agenda you also consider an order that will further protect those rights, an action in alignment with the recent order by Governor Jay Inslee. The proposed order will prohibit Port Police from providing cooperation of, cooperation of assistance to any federal or out-of-state law enforcement agency or persons on matters related to abortion or other reproductive health care services that are lawful in Washington State. I support this order. Turning to news at the Port, the port's ability to make investments in critical aviation and maritime infrastructure absolutely depends on building and maintaining a strong financial foundation. That is why I'm happy to report that the port has received very strong ratings from all major rating agencies for upcoming revenue bond issue, including an upgrade from Standard & Poor's from Standard & Poor's. This is, goes from strong to excellent. This means we'll get very, very, very favorable rates when we borrow funds for these investments. These ratings reflect extremely strong market position at of this extremely strong market position of Seattle Tacoma International Airport as well as the dual hub for Alaska and Delta Airlines. Our financial position also is strengthened by our diverse revenue sources including the Northwest Seaport Alliance, our Alaska cruise business and the port's tax levy. We were also praised for our prudent financial management, especially during the pandemic. We exercised careful cost cutting along with effective use of federal grants to maintain a strong balance sheet. These reports note that there are risks going forward, but our large capital with our large capital program, such as a potential cost escalations, but the analysts expect the port to manage these risks carefully. Credit goes to our entire port team, including our financial and operational divisions who steward our funds so carefully. Talking about SeaTac International Airport, last week we celebrated the 73rd anniversary of the opening day for Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. That day in 1949 was a significant step forward for the entire region as towards building a strong domestic and international air hub. The region's wisdom was proven as the airport was and continues to be a powerful engine for economic development here and around the state. Our continuing responsibility is to work is to the work started in 1949 to preserve and improve this vital regional infrastructure. To that point, I'm happy to report that the airport has been awarded a $10 million competitive grant from the federal bipartisan infrastructure legislation. 
That money is earmarked for our concourses B, C, and D restroom modernization project. Clearly a very important customer service responsibility. This Saturday marks an important port milestone as we will welcome the public to the Duwamish People's Park, our largest Duwamish River habitat and public access project. The project has more, been more than 15 years in the making, but I think that everyone will agree it's worth the wait. The project reflects our commitment to engage and support a community long impacted by industrial activity. Duwamish People's Park, formerly Terminal 117, features 14 acres of improved shoreline habitat and new facilities to bring people closer to the river. These amenities include a, a viewpoint pier, accessible pathways and trails, seating, signage, public art, and a hand carry boat launch. This project would not have been possible without the leadership of the Commission and the sustained efforts by many people across the port and the community over many years. This includes environmental management, construction and project management, and external relations, as well as many dedicated leaders in the Duwamish River community. We thank them for their hard work that has made this project come to fruition. We're very proud of this project, and we invite the public to come down and see their newest park this weekend. Another example of how the port is working hard to create economic opportunities is our Priority Hire program which targets jobs in the construction industry for residents of economically distressed areas of the county. The White House recently highlighted King County's Priority Hire Program as a leading example of how data and evidence can shape good policy decisions. The Ports Program is operated in partnership with King County and other regional agencies and it has produced solid returns from the community. Last year, the port had eight projects with priority hire requirements, and we put 99 community residents to work on those projects. On average, about 25% of workers on each project were from the distressed zip codes. Expanding the pool of workers is especially critical at this time of labor shortages. In other news, the COVID-19 virus remains persistent uh, here in the community, the state, and the nation. There is a new highly transmissible subvariant of COVID-19 circulating throughout Washington and its communities. The subvariant BA5 from the Omnigron family is rapidly becoming the variant most responsible for the rise of COVID-19 infections throughout the US as well as Washington. BA5 is more transmissible and can cause infections even in those with immunity or current vaccines. This means that a person can easily get COVID uh, get another COVID-19 infection. Public health authorities highly recommend that all eligible individuals who can receive a booster should do so. Being fully vaccinated and boosted is still our strategy to reduce severity of illness, hospitalizations, and death from BA5. You can also protect yourself by wearing a well-fitting mask in crowded spaces and staying home if you have symptoms. Turning to today's agenda, I'm very happy to bring forward for your authorization our planned Des Moines Creek West development. Our developer is Panatoni Development Company, one of the region's leading firms and our partner in the, in the earlier Des Moines Creek business park in the North, Northeast Re Redevelopment Area projects in Burien. These projects represent a continuation of our partnership with the City of Des Moines that dates back many years. Developing this property will generate $3.4 million in revenue for the port, create new jobs, and help revitalize the Des Moines downtown. It also advances our workforce, equity, and sustainability goals by improving a community trail, protecting wetlands, and going beyond city requirements for tree replacement. You'll also be asked to support a unique small business assistance partnership with Seattle, uh, Seattle 
Metro Chamber of Commerce. This new Community Business Connector initiative provides a extra outreach and assistance to our ethnic businesses at a time when small businesses are still struggling as we continue to recover from the pandemic. I've been watching this initiative develop and unfold over the last year and I'm very excited that we're ready to launch this new initiative. Maritime Blue will also give you an annual update on its activities and initiatives. I'm pleased to see how this organization has grown and blossomed in the last few years. They've been able to advance our Maritime Innovation Accelerator program as well as other priority projects for the port. To conclude, I also want to highlight today's presentation on our continued efforts to improve accessibility to port programs and facilities. This briefing will focus on accessibility of the port website and commission meeting pages. This is an impressive and important program to connect the community with the port. So commissioners, this concludes my report for today. Thank you, Executive Director Metric. Uh, we are now at committee reports. Uh, Erica Chung, please proceed. Thank you. Good afternoon, President Calkins and commissioners. There are no committee reports today. The next committee meetings are as follows. The Waterfront and Industrial Lands Committee and the Portwide Arts Board are scheduled to meet tomorrow, Wednesday, July 13. Equity and Workforce Development Committee is scheduled for Friday, July 15. And the Aviation Committee and the Sustainability, Environment, and Climate Committee is scheduled to meet next Tuesday, July 19th. This concludes my update. Thank you. Commissioners, any questions about uh, committee reports or lack thereof? All right. Uh, with that, we will now move to public comment. We will now accept general public comment from those who've signed up to speak on items related to the port. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us in the chambers. As the clerk calls your name, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself, then please repeat your name for the record. If you're on the Teams meeting and are also streaming and meeting on the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. Comment time will be limited to two minutes per person. The timer will show on the screen for your viewing and will chime twice at the end of the two-minute period, at which time I'll ask speakers to conclude their remarks so that we may hear from our next speaker. Clerk Hart, go ahead and call the first speaker. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Our first speaker today is Iris Antman. Iris, if you're on the telephone, it's star six to unmute. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Great. Good afternoon. My name is Iris Anson, and I'm a member of Seattle Cruise Control. I'm here to ask you to consider the part that cruise in Seattle plays in the larger context of global warming. Cruising is an important economic driver in Seattle. I acknowledge that it's not a small thing for you to look at the harm it causes. And I applaud you for your efforts, such as shore power, scrubbers, solar panels on building roofs, to address adverse effects. Most recently, you've embarked on the Green Corridor Project. It's clear that you're aware of the problems we're facing and that you're trying to address them. And I applaud you for these important efforts. And at the same time, I feel it's essential for you to go further and consider a reduction in the number of cruises altogether. We know the present and potential future effects of global warming are devastating and will make large areas of the planet uninhabitable. I don't need to remind you of what this means for our children and grandchildren 
and the kind of world they're likely to be living in. I believe the level of decrease in fossil fuels needed requires a reduction and a phasing out of cruising in its current form. Analyses of the IPCC reports are clear that future technologies aside, such as carbon capture and clean hydrogen fuel, not available at scale for decades, if ever, are not a replacement for ending fossil fuel use now. We cannot continue to emit more greenhouse gases and believe that in 20 or 30 years we'll be able to halt the damage we're doing now that will be irreversible. I'm asking you to hold your loved ones in mind while you contemplate our warming planet. I'm asking you to decrease cruising using your leases and birthing agreements, as you've suggested. I believe there are other ways the port can do business besides cruising. And I believe that once you're ready to face the current reality of climate crisis and its main cause, you can come up with brilliant ideas to create meaningful change. We need you, and I'm asking you to act bravely and do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ammon. Next speaker. Yes, our next speaker is Alex Zimmerman. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's working? Yeah, Zikhail, my dirty damn Nazi fascist mob bandita and psychopath. My name is Alex Zimmerman. I want to speak about something what this makes me absolutely happy, you know what this means. It's about damn Nazi psychopath abortion propaganda. <laughs> yeah, I support women for abortion and I support court decision too. But what has happened in Seattle, in state Washington, is very unique. This can come only from them Nazi freaking idiot, a psychopath. One governor, you know what this means, decide no law. Bam, bada, boom, a Führer. <laughs> Another Führer, executive, decides to need a couple million dollars for people, for women from outside. So this okay with me, you know what this means. Why this propaganda go for who? It's go probably for 50 percentage women before 40 in Seattle who mentally sick. Yeah, for this is idiot elect idiot. <laughs> this is exactly what's happened. For this we have a collapse. Because idiot, when you born like an idiot, you will be idiot forever. Nothing can be changed. And this is exactly what's happened. So I speak right now to everybody who not 100% cretina. You understand what this means? Stand up, guys. We need to change something. We have smart people around. Intellectual, professional. Why we elect always piece of garbage? You know what this means? What is absolutely don't know what this means business. Look this. From left side, a professional who know about business, probably 100%. From right side, very low professional class commissioner who don't know nothing about this. Probably never make a penny with a hand for business. So this is exactly what has happened right now. I try to understand and speak right now to this professional. Stand up. We need to clean this dirty chamber from additional idiot. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Zimmerman. Next speaker. Yes, our next speaker is Yvette Magenya. Yvette, are you on the line? 
Okay, and we'll move to Tammy Canavan. Hello? Yes, who is speaking? Oh, this is Yvette. Oh, hi, Yvette. Thank you. Go ahead, please. Perfect. Hi, commissioners. My name is Yvette Magania. I'm the government relations manager for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates in Washington, and I'm here to testify in favor of the Ports Proclamation in support of access to abortion. This resolution affirms our city's commitment to equal rights and abortion access and recognizes the immense benefits that equitable abortion access has for all people who can become pregnant. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and ended the federal constitutional right to abortion, it immediately upended patients' ability to access abortion care. Eleven states currently have bans in effect, with many more poised to ban abortion in the near future. In Idaho, a trigger ban that could ban almost all abortions is currently making its way through the state Supreme Court. As the state's largest reproductive health care provider, every day we see firsthand the devastating impact this decision is having on our patients and communities. Here in Washington, we are already caring for patients from Texas and other states with abortion restrictions that force patients to travel out of state to access the care they need. Following the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, our call centers have seen a significant increase in calls from patients who are terrified that they wouldn't be able to access the care they need. As more states move to ban abortion, we're expecting to see even more patients from out of state come to Washington to seek care. To ensure, all, to ensure that all patients who walk through our doors can get the care they need, Planned Parenthood and other community partners are working to ensure that we have the systems and funding in place to help patients access um, abortion care, including supporting patients traveling from out of state. You, Hello? You can wrap up your comments, Ms. Magania. Oh, perfect. Uh, now more than ever, it is critical for our city and our state to stand up and affirm our, and affirm our commitment to protecting reproductive freedom for people, no matter what happens elsewhere in the country. This resolution affirms our city's long-held support for abortion access and also calls on federal lawmakers to do more to ensure that patients' rights to access basic health care doesn't depend on their zip code. Thank you so much, uh, Port of Seattle, for the opportunity to comment. Um, and I and Planned Parenthood supports um, this proclamation. Thank you, Ms. Magania. Next speaker. Yes, our next speaker is Tammy Canavan. Good afternoon. Um, I am Tammy Canavan. I'm the new uh, president and CEO of Visit Seattle. And as I cross the two-month threshold on my tenure, I wanted to introduce myself and thank you for your support of Cruise. It is such a critical element of our tourism economy. The tourism and hospitality industry has been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was certainly seen within the cruise industry itself, but our industry largely made up of small businesses, including restaurants and hotels, retail, museums, attractions, they've all suffered significantly. So we're finally seeing a reliable trend of recovery in 2022, particularly this late spring and summer. And there's no doubt that cruise has played a significant role in spurring that recovery. 
For the first time in two and a half years, our downtown hotels are exceeding 80% occupancy and visitor volumes this summer are approaching pre-pandemic levels. This impact is felt at every level, but especially amongst our small businesses, whether it's the artisans at Pike Place Market or coffee shop owners in the Central District or Brewery in Ballard, and it comes at a time when they really need it. So I want to applaud the Port of Seattle for not only creating the economic impact that is associated with cruise, but also for serving as one of the safest cruise home ports in the world throughout the pandemic, and for growing cruise in an environmentally conscious way, ensuring this business remains sustainable for our region for decades to come. So thank you, Commissioners, for your role in driving economic impact across the region. Visit Seattle. Our 700-plus partner businesses in travel, tourism, and hospitality depend on it, and we don't take you for granted. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Kahneman, and welcome. Thank you. Next speaker. Yes, our next speaker is Matt Ventosa. Commissioners, thank you. I'm Matt Ventosa. I'm the Vice President of the International Longshore Warehouse Union here in Seattle. And I want to thank the commissioners for this time to, to be able to talk to you. And uh, I have a statement. I've been working on the cruise ships in Seattle since their calling over 20 years ago. The ILWU works these vessels from loading ships' stores and passengers' luggage to loading ships' gear for their internal needs. Not only does the ILWU work these vessels, we welcome them and their contribution to the local economies across the country. The Port of Seattle is a leader in attracting this business, and we welcome any and all now and into the future, as long as it's not at the cost of losing any container terminal space. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ventosa. Next speaker. Yes, our final sign-up today is from Isla Scott. Okay. Hi, Commissioners. Um, my name is Isla Scott, and I am a University of Washington student studying the environment. Um, I'm currently working with the Defenders of North SeaTac Park, and I'm here today to speak to you about concerns we have for North SeaTac Park. Uh, this park was created to compensate area residents for airport impacts, but within the Port of Seattle Sustainable Airport Master Plan and the Port's Real Estate Strategic Plan, the port is now proposing to commercially develop on 31.5 acres inside North SeaTac Park and over an estimated 70 acres in neighborhoods all around it um, in order to expand um, SeaTac International Airport operations. But conversely, the public health of Seattle and King County has actually recommended an increase in green spaces and tree coverage near the airport to reduce human exposure to deadly airport pollutants. And as a person pursuing environmental science as a career, I um, cannot urge you enough to um, honor this recommendation and defend North SeaTac Park. Um, I have done extensive research at my time um, at the University of Washington into the effect of airports and aircrafts and on the communities that surround them. Uh, the closer one the closer a person is to an airport, the higher chances of decreased lung and cardiac function, the higher chances of chronic respiratory and heart disease, lung cancer, bronchitis, asthmatic attacks, depression, anxiety, uh, respiratory infections in children, the list, it, it goes on. Um, however, it has been found that green spaces and tree canopy cover can largely mitigate these impacts. And not only that, but they can also reduce crime, contribute to energy conservation, promote economic prosperity, and cool down neighborhoods. And I have not uh, even begun to touch on the environmental benefits and just how important trees are to mitigating climate change. 
Um, so this is a major environmental health issue, and as shown by the U.S. Census Bureau, it's also a major environmental justice issue. So I come here today to ask you to please defend the park and the community that surrounds it, um, and trees can save lives. Uh, before this meeting, I emailed you all of my sources for the, some of the information I just said, and um, also the defenders of North Sea Tax Park consensus to sign and defend the park. So please read through them and um, thank you for allowing me to speak today and for listening. Have a good day. Thank you, Ms. Scott. That concludes our sign-ups today. Is there anyone else present or on the team's call who didn't sign up but who wishes to address the commission? Okay. I believe that concludes public comment. Um, at this point, I'll ask the commission Excuse clerk me, to- Commissioner Falcons? Yes. You know, having served on the commission for six years, and I just want to have a personal note as one of the few Jews that have been on the commission, uh, that I find um, it's an obscene gesture to be uh, given a Nazi salute and uh, to be referred to as supportive of Nazism or referred to as being a part of that. And just want to have, you know, on behalf of folks of my religion, that I just want to acknowledge that being the case. Thank you, Commissioner Fellman. Really appreciate that. Okay, at this Mr. time, Mr. Commission President, before you continue, can you call from anyone from the room who might want to speak? Is there anyone in the room who would like to give public comment who has not had the chance? Okay. At this time, I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of the written comments that we've received. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Members of the Commission, we've received two written comments for today's meeting. Ann Miller writes regarding the protection of North SeaTac Park and asks the port to support the community forest consensus to defend people living in the surrounding airport communities from negative health and climate impacts caused by deforestation. And then Isla Scott submitted written comments supporting her spoken comments here today. And that concludes the written comments received. Thank you, Clerk Hart. Hearing no further public testimony, we'll move to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. At this point, we've heard of no items to be pulled today. At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda covering items 8A, 8B, 8C, 8D, 8E, and 8F. So moved. Second. The motion was made and seconded. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. And with that, the motion passes. Uh, moving on in the agenda today to new business, we have four new business items. Uh, and we are going to begin with the item that was uh, moved in the agenda. So, Clerk Hart, can you please read the first item into the record? And then we'll have Executive Director Metric introduce it. Yes, this is agenda item 4A, proclamation in support of codifying comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion and marriage equality in Washington State, in the Washington State Constitution and federal law. Um, and actually, I believe I am introducing the speakers today. Um, this is, we'll be hearing from 
Port employees Melanie O'Kane from Accounting, um, Accounting Financial Reporting Records and Administration Manager, Penny Som, Process Improvement Ma Program Manager, and Lucretia Clayton, Financial Analyst for Maritime. And they will be reading the proclamation for us today. Melanie, I believe you'll, you'll begin. Whereas, in 1970, Washington State voters approved Referendum 20, which legalized abortion in Washington State. And, whereas, in, on January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled 7-2 in Roe v. Wade that unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion is unconstitutional, the court held that a set of Texas statutes criminalizing abortion in most instances violated a woman's constitutional right of privacy, which it found to be implicit in the liberty guarantee of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And whereas in 1991, Washington State voters approved Initiative 120, which declared a woman's right to choose physician-performed abortion prior to fetal viability and further expanded and it protected access to abortion in the state if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And whereas comprehensive abortion care is included in the list of essential health care services published by the World Health Organization in 2020, and whereas, according to the World Health Organization, lack of access to safe, affordable, timely, and respectful abortion care and the stigma associated with abortion pose risks to women's physical and mental well-being throughout the life course. Inaccessible, inaccessibility of quality abortion care risks violating a range of human rights of women and girls, including the right to life, the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, the right to benefit from scientific progress and its realization, the right to decide freely and responsibly on the number, spacing, and timing of children, and the right to be free from torture, cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment and punishment. And whereas on June 24, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States used their decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization to strike down Roe v. Wade, ruling that the Due Process Clause and Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment do not apply to an individual's right to safe and legal abortions and whereas U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade effectively removes bodily autonomy from women, girls, transgender, and gender nonconforming people with uterus nationwide who can no longer seek abortion care, a vital form of health care and creates risk for future judicial interpretations that erode protections for contraception and marriage equality. And, whereas, this decision unilaterally targets people who cannot get pregnant, people who can get pregnant will disparately create barriers to living their full potential. 
as access to abortion care directly impacts their socioeconomic, educational, and health outcomes and impacts their quality of life. And whereas the long-standing harm institutionalized racism and barriers to healthcare access have on communities of color will exasperate inequalities impacting racial minorities and undocumented individuals seeking abortion care. And whereas the mission of the Port of Seattle is to promote economic opportunities and quality of life in the region by advancing trade, travel, commerce, and job creation in an equitable, accountable, and environmentally responsible manner. And You're muted, Lucretia. How about now? We can hear you. Very good. Whereas Washington State Governor Jake Hensley officially stated his support for an amendment to protect an individual's right to safety and legal abortion in Washington State Constitution. Now, therefore, the Port of Seattle Commission hereby adopts this proclamation to express this official position in support of an amendment to the Washington State Constitution and passage of a federal law to both codify an individual's right to comprehensive, safe, and accessible reproductive health care, including abortion, as well as marriage equality. Thank you all for the reading of the proclamation. Uh, thank you, Melanie, thank you, Lucretia, and thank you, Penny. At this time, I'm going to ask commissioners to provide their comments, and we will begin with Commissioner Hasegawa. Thank you, Melanie, Lucretia, and Penny for that powerful reading. Throughout American history, women have been relegated to family roles without access to economic and political capital. Every advancement made in law and society since this country's conception has fallen woefully short of parity. On June 24th, the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. And in the most fundamental form, decision-making power over own bodies and future has been taken from people who can get pregnant. This has severe socioeconomic implications for the population being regulated. And we understand the seriousness that's at hand. Because Washington State is a welcoming state that will provide critical medical abortion care, pregnant people in need will come here. As we heard in public comment today, Planned Parenthood reports that people already are. The Port of Seattle is a transportation hub and a point of entry for people from around the country. And recognizing the mobility implications of the Supreme Court decision, this proclamation is an opportunity for us to model people-centered policy. We embrace the opportunity to facilitate safety and foster a culture of inclusion. I'd like to thank the executive leadership team for your commitment to reproductive health care, including abortions, and for embracing this proclamation. I'd like to thank City of Kenmore Deputy Mayor Melanie O'Kane, who's also a Port of Seattle employee, for your thought leadership on this proclamation, 
And I'd also like to acknowledge the Office of Equity and Commission staff for your significant contributions. Um, and to my fellow commissioners, thank you for your vocal support. The Port of Seattle will not stand by in complacent observation of oppression, and I'm proud to introduce this proclamation today on behalf of the institution. Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you. Um, well, I just want to begin by expressing my gratitude to Commissioner Hasegawa and all of the staff members that brought this proclamation forward today. Um, I also want to thank uh, Plant Parenthood's leadership for your um, uh, comments today. Um, again, the decision to overturn Roy v. Wade um, creates a public health crisis. I think that is very much undeniable. Um, half of, you know, all these states are anticipated to ban abortions. We are anticipating an increase in travel through airports um, nationwide and even out of the country to undergo procedures and um, access reproductive uh, health care. Uh, again, this decision will not stop abortions. It will only put American families' lives in danger. Um, you know, the Seattle Times just put out an article, I think this sometime this week, and reported that the CDC uh, reports that in 2019, 5% of all abortions in Washington state are from um, out of the state, uh, a state residence. And um, similar to what Commissioner Hasegawa just stated, um, we're expecting those numbers to go up. Um, Washington State is expected to see a 385% increase in travelers seeking reproductive health care due to uh, the overturning of Roy v. Wade. There is also, you know, this is also a, an, an equity issue. There's an equity component to this ruling. I had a conversation with my mother this past week, and she's a person of very strong faith. And one of the things that she said to me was, how about our government prioritize protecting living children? She said, how about they prioritize protecting children in classrooms? How about they prioritize the well-being for children and youth in foster care systems? In any given day, there are nearly 400,000 children in our foster care systems across this country. In 2019, over 600,000 children spent time in a U.S. foster care system. Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than their white counterparts. Let's sit with that. There are OBGYN shortages across this nation that is already a threat to so many women and birthing parents' reproductive care. The data shows limiting access to reproductive care has many consequences, including increasing poverty, 
unemployment, pregnancy-related deaths. This is about health care. It's about equity. It's about economic security. All of the things that us commissioners got elected to fight for and to protect in our community. I believe everyone deserves access to health care, especially in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Here at home, I believe that the 15,000 plus people who work on our port facilities deserve access to basic health care and wellness. As an elected official, as a woman, as a human being, I support reproductive care, clinic access, health care reform implementations, abortion rights, and access to emergency contraceptives. I'm committed to standing up for all of our port employees and Washingtonians. It's simply just the right thing to do. Again, I thank Commissioner Hasegawa's leadership and to all of the port staff members who brought this proclamation forward today. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Yeah, um, I'll make my comments brief, but first and foremost, I just want to express how grateful and honored I am to share this dais with um, Commissioner Hazagawa and uh, Commissioner Mohammed, two very strong women who have really led on so many issues that they, uh, since they've joined us, but in particular, I think uh, your, your leadership in this space is deeply appreciated and much needed at this time. Um, and I am personally very honored and, um, and, you know, proud to support this proclamation that you've brought forward. Um, and, you know, in particular, I want to thank you, Commissioner Hazegawa, for uh, being front and center on this issue, but also open your, opening yourself up and, and being vulnerable with your personal story to the public. Um, you know, despite how we may talk about this issue in generalities, and, you know, this is never an is easy thing to do. Uh, you know, and I can never know as a man what it's like, but you know, this is never, those, these decisions are never easy. Um, and, um, and I really appreciate you being vulnerable. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, um, without getting too political on the issue or issues, uh, is that um, with how the Supreme Court is trending, my expectation is for this to be the first of many battles. Um, today it's about abortion, but tomorrow it could be about marriage equality or you know, uh, who knows where, how far this court will go. Uh, but one thing I wanted to make clear to the public and to the people at the Port of Seattle is that this commission stands ready to fight each of those battles. Uh, that as a commission, we are all united and, yeah, and unified in our voice uh, in, in advocating for each individual person's rights. Uh, and so, again, very honored to be supporting this proclamation, to be standing in solidarity and allyship with both of you and all the women who are currently fighting for their rights. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Commissioner Haskawa, for bringing this forward. As I did make my statements clear at the last commission meeting, I stand with you all, and it is an honor to work with this commission, and what you bring to this discussion is invaluable. I will uh, not belabor this further, but this is truly something that we have to band together, not just as a commission, but as a society, and I... Uh, I'm committed to doing that, and whatever the poor can do to contribute to that end, I stand with you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. 
Uh, I will conclude uh, this commissioner comment section with just a few thoughts of my own. Uh, the first is a reminder that even in a democratic society, human rights are not subject to the will of the majority. They are inalienable. They aren't subject to the majority of a Supreme Court, of a Congress, or even to the majority of people. And while in this particular instance we may have the majority of people with us, it in fact does not matter. Human rights are inalienable. No court should be able to circumscribe them. And in this particular case, no one should be forced to give birth. No one. It's unfortunate we're in a state now, in a, in a, in a moment now, where uh, each state has been given the authority by the Supreme Court to determine its own laws going forward. What that means for Washington State and for our jurisdiction within that is that we have an opportunity to model what it truly means to honor life. And that's what we're doing here today. We're saying that in spite of what the Supreme Court may have ruled, we will be that welcoming place. We will ensure that we do not participate in the contravention of human rights. One of the hardest decisions a person might ever make is this very decision. And only that person, with the support of their healthcare provider, is in a position to be able to make that decision. And so I support this proclamation and the, and the order that we will consider next. Any other comments before we move to a vote? All right, we do need a motion and a second to adopt the proclamation. Mr. President, I move that we adopt the proclamation as presented. Second. Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll for the vote? Thank you for the vote, beginning with Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hasekawa. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Muhammad. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you, there are five ayes and zero nays for this item. With that, the motion passes. All right, at this time, we will consider item 10A on our agenda. Uh, Clerk Hart, can you read it into the record, please? Thank you. Yes, this is agenda item 10A, order number 2022-08, an order aligning Port of Seattle policing policy with Washington State Governor Jay Inslee's Directive 22-12, prohibiting cooperation or assistance with out-of-state abortion and other reproductive health care investigations, prosecutions, or legal actions. Commissioners, as you have so clearly stated in your proclamation, the port stands behind everyone's right to comprehensive, safe, and accessible reproductive health care. This order makes it clear that the port will provide no assistance to federal or state law enforcement or other agencies in matters related to abortion or other reproductive health care services that are lawful in our state. This parallels the recent order by Governor Jay Inslee. This order does not apply to the granting of assistance or information that is necessary to comply with Washington state or federal law. I support this action. Right. Um, I believe Pete Mills will be giving uh, the intro for this as well. Peter, oh, there you go. Hey, Pete. <laughs> you surprised us. Go ahead, Pete. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Pete Mills, Commission uh, Strategic Advisor, Mr. Executive, Mr. President, and Commission. 
here's a brief overview of what, what the order, uh, the specifics. The order includes the following direction to the executive director. Develop and maintain part, uh, implement port policy consistent with the governor's directive 22-12 concerning reproductive health care investigations and provide direction to the Port of Seattle Police Department to refrain from pr providing cooperation or assistance to entities if the matter considers concerns abortion or other reproductive health care services that are lawful in Washington and establish a process consistent with Washington State uh, Office of the Attorney General and Port's General Counsel to scrutinize all requests for cooperation or assistance related to reproductive health care or services and report all requests for cooperation or assistance related to reproductive health care or services to the Commission. Uh, present here today uh, uh, to add, uh, to inform if needed is uh, uh, Interim Police Chief Via uh, Port of, with the Port of Seattle Police uh, and our General Counsel Pete Rammels uh, and others who can answer questions related to this order. Thank you. All right, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Muhammad, as sponsor of the order. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm introducing this order today just to ensure that our community members understand that we are committed to safeguard access to reproductive care um, at the Port of Seattle, um, which is very much consist consistent with Washington state law. Um, this order clearly outlines that the Port of Seattle police won't cooperate with other states' abortion investigations. Um, our port police won't share data or use port resources for abortion investigation. Um, the port will carefully scrutinize all requests for cooperation related to reproductive health care or services from any party in any uh, state where abortion is banned or otherwise restricted. Our goal is to be consistent with Washington state law. Indeed, abortion is legal in our state um, and citizens in Washington state have the right to choose or refuse to have an abortion. It is your choice um, here at home. Uh, the Port of Seattle is a welcoming port that is committed to the safety and inclusion of local residents and all visitors who interact with our facilities and services. The port has an essential obligation to foster a culture and environment that makes it possible for our region to remain a vibrant and welcoming global gateway where everyone feels safe. And um, as a commissioner, I am committed to standing up for women's rights, birthing parents' rights, and our constitution. And I'm looking forward to my colleagues supporting this order today. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Muhammad. Any other commissioners interested in speaking to this, this motion? Commissioner Hasegawa. Thank you, Mr. President. I'm speaking in support um, of uh, this motion, and um, fundamentally, we must not criminalize women for seeking reproductive health care services. Um, this is an important and meaningful, tangible step that the Port of Seattle can take, a first step, as we talked about in our last Port of Seattle Commission meeting, to be able to address barriers to justice. Um, this is also in alignment with our port mission, as Commissioner Mohammed aptly pointed out, um, to create access to opportunities um, and promote the quality of life. 
Um, I commend the Port of Seattle for using the tools available to it in its toolbox to be able to advance justice. And I'd also like to specifically call out the Port of Seattle Police and our Chief um, Via for expressing their support of this action as well. The Port of Seattle, by um, uh, by by order of this motion, will not comply with any interstate or federal agency. Um, in criminalizing women for seeking the reproductive health care services that they need. Um, so I, I look forward to voting in support of this. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Yeah, you know, I think this is a perfect follow-up to the proclamation that we passed. And if the proclamation is a statement of our, val of our values, this motion is putting those values to action. So thank you both for putting this forward. Thank you, Commissioner Hamdi, and I'm uh, excited to be supporting this as well. Commissioner Feldman. Thank you, Commissioner Muhammad. And uh, as I said, happy to support anything that furthers our policy position and putting words to action is a great way to start. So thank you so much. All right, hearing no further discussion for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved. Seconded. All right, the motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. For the vote, beginning with Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. And the motion passes. Thank you, Pete. Clerk Hart, can you please read the next item into the record? We'll then hear from Executive Director Metric to introduce the item. Four. Okay. Um, yes, this is agenda item 10B, authorization for the Executive Director to execute a ground lease with PDC Seattle LPIVBB slash TH, otherwise known as Panatoni. Um, to allow them to develop approximately 399,337 square foot of Class A environmentally sustainable state-of-the-art logistics and distribution facilities, which are aviation-supportive, light industrial logistics facilities in the city of Des Moines, Washington, west of the Des Moines Creek Business Park. Commissioners, our next item concerns the development of our Des Moines Creek West property in the city of, city of Des Moines. We have partnered with the city over the last eight years to develop our Des Moines Creek properties. These efforts have created jobs for the city and new economic activity also helps the city revitalize its downtown. When developed, the project will also improve access to the regional trail network. Our presenters today are Dave McFadden, our managing director of Economic Development Division, Kara Lease, Real Estate Development Director, City of Des Moines Mayor, the Honorable Matt Mahoney, and City of Des Moines Deputy Mayor, Tracy Buxton. Representatives from the Panatoni Company are available if, in the room if we have uh, any additional questions. So at this point, I'm gonna turn over to Dave McFadden. Dave? Thank you, uh, and good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. I am very pleased to ask for your support of this project, and let's go ahead and show the slide deck, please. So we're asking, let's go to the next slide, please. We're asking for authorization um, to execute a ground lease with Panatoni Development so that they can develop this project to um, provide multiple benefits to us and the community at large. Um, let's go to the next slide, please. Just um, 
a picture of where the property is. It sits next to the FA regional headquarters in Des Moines and its development really represents a long-term partnership with the city of Des Moines and you'll hear more about that in a moment. Uh, we have been working on this development for some time, several years now, and I think our patience in bringing this project forward has helped us uh, do it right on many levels. And so with that, I want to introduce uh, my real estate development director, Kira Lees, and again, she'll be followed by uh, Deputy, or Mayor Matt Mahoney from the city of Des Moines and Deputy Mayor Tracy Buxton. Kira. Thank you, Dave. Commission President, Commissioners, I'm proud to bring this project forward um, for you today. If we could go to the next slide, please. Thank you. As Dave said, uh, we've been working on this project collectively with our partners in the city of Des Moines, who you'll hear from. Uh, to develop out this business park at Des Moines with this representative project at Des Moines Creek West under a ground lease. We issued an RFP to bring competitors to this project. Panatoni was in a field of seven with an outstanding proposal, which I'm going to present to you today. The project supports regional aviation, logistics, and manufacturing industries. will create up to 550 net new jobs with a combined annual earnings of about $16 million. Abbott Construction has committed to developing with their labor component a project labor agreement, we believe one of the first under a private a public partnership ground lease. Uh, in the state of Washington, um, the company is committed to MBWE utilization goals. Uh, it will generate uh, nearly $4 million in port revenue, uh, combining tax revenues and revenues from this lease. We'll get into the details of that in a moment. Um, and we'll target a potential lead or similar sustainability standards in its construction. Uh, as Dave alluded to, and we'll hear in more detail later, um, this development project actually preserves adjacent wetlands in a significant green buffer. We'll get into the details of that with our partners. Um, and will uh, is committed to relocating and improving a popular walking trail that currently transverses the property. Thank you. If we can go to the next slide, please. Uh, our development partner is Panatoni, Seattle, uh, whose representatives are with us today, Bart Brunstad, partner, and Len Syke, our project uh, director for this project. Um, they are one of the largest and most uh, well thought of and successful commercial develop industrial developers in the region and has worked with us on previous projects, uh, both in this business park and beyond in the Burien uh, area as well, on very successful projects that are currently working for the Port of Seattle. And as Dave said, those representatives are in the audience too if you have subsequent questions for them. Next slide. going to give you a brief uh, overview of the history of this property um, and our engagement with it. And I will defer on a lot of uh, the ecological details to our partners in Des Moines who are stewarding that process. But uh, this parcel was originally purchased with airport FAA funds. Um, we actually bought it as a potential uh, borrow area for third one way, which was never utilized. So this site has been largely vacant and not used, remained undeveloped since that time. 
Uh, as we developed our real estate strategic plan in 2016, we identified an adjacent parcel, a 14.3 acre parcel and directly adjacent that was at that time uh, poised for surplus or had been surplused by WashDOT as a potential thoroughfare that was never utilized for their 509 right-of-way project. So we uh, negotiated an agreement and actually purchased this property last July uh, to enhance the footprint and make for a better project overall. Um, the property, this depiction here in the photograph, uh, represents a 1936 um, uh, uh, overview of it. Um, and it includes both the washed-out parcel and the one that we had owned previously. As you see, a significant green buffer, much of which will be retained. The actual footprint um, is covered in a majority of red alder and other hardwoods, uh, indicating that it had been previously disturbed. In other words, there's no old-growth forest here or anything like that. A very limited development uh, over the time that um, it was platted. The ground cover is predominantly invasive species. Um, wetlands and buffers impact a great deal of the site, uh, making it non-developable and actually supporting the ecology of the subsequent development. Again, we'll get into details on that later. So this is what we're working with. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, so we have um, a number of benefits that we've identified in our planning uh, with the city and the developers the improved trail access. Um, and I am going to um, be following on the sustainability, sustainable building design with the sustainability team here at the port, uh, but we're targeting potential lead or better depending on the particulars of the project as Pranatoni develops them. Um, and this um, ongoing uh, effort to preserve the key wetlands is part of Des Moines' purview as well. So a substantial buffer zone will remain, even though that is quite a substantial building. Next. So now I think I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues from the city of Des Moines, Mayor Mahoney and uh, Tracy Buxton, Deputy, uh, De Deputy Mayor, to talk more about their plans for this and how we're going to be working together. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank you for uh, allowing us, both Deputy Mayor Buxton and myself, to speak to you today. We've come in support of this project. A couple of the things that benefit the city is we're always challenged with the Gross Management Act, and adding jobs is one of the big ones there. This project nearly adds another 6,000 jobs, and that's not even including the construction piece. Great opportunities for apprenticeship and et cetera that come along with that. And nearly an annual amount of about $16 million in living wages. So that's a, that's a big plus for us. We did a lot of work with, in partnership with you and Panatoni on the 216th and the 24th Street to have the ability for transportation um, to be able to ship goods to the airport and have that multimodal freight type of uh, transportation. And that's been a, a tremendous investment, so we're ready for it. The other one that it provides is safety, particularly with the trail. It's no secret that this area has been problematic. We've had a lot of homeless issues, encampments, waste dumps, and so forth, and it's required a lot of response from, from our police and also, I believe, uh, the Port of Seattle police as well. And many of our residents have often commented about the trash, the dirtiness, et cetera, and the feeling of being unsafe. And what this does is 
it'll provide a clear, safe, and vastly improved trail that connects um, Des Moines Creek Trail to our Barnes Creek Trail. So it's a vital component in that. I would also say that this very well could have been a highway, 509. Unfortunately, it's going to go another route through the very uh, northeast corner of Des Moines and into SeaTac. But this is a great solution for this. This is a far better use. As, uh, as was mentioned, it was farmland and it was 509. And this is a great opportunity for us economically to move forward with that particular piece of land. And there's an environmental component, which I'm going to turn over to Deputy Mayor Buxton. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Commissioners, for having us today. So I wanted to specifically address, I think one of the big concerns is the urban canopy situation in the trees, and if there were uh, objections to the development taking out the trees. Uh, Next slide, Aubrey. Okay. So uh, the city of Des Moines actually in, in uh, you know, um, maintaining or working to maintain a sustainable urban canopy. We've partnered with um, a, a few other cities in a green cities partnership with Forterra, which actually was a program that was paid for and offered uh, through the port to these cities. And as a result of that, we have, um, we have a manual that was created for us that created an inventory of our urban canopy and then suggestions and a plan moving forward to create a sustainable urban canopy. And one of the components of the inventory talked about how the most of the mature canopy in the city is aging trees that uh, either invasives or aging trees that really need to be replaced with an, a new a new young growing canopy to be in order to be sustainable. And so part of that plan is taking out some of these aging, dying trees, which really cover, I think there are two or three mature conifers and everything else is, is would be in the category under this Forterra inventory of trees that need to be removed and replaced by a more suitable, sustainable canopy. So moving forward with this development and the plan, my understanding just learned today that actually the developer's plan is to uh, re to include more replacement trees even than our Forterra plan would recommend. So this, this is a way that a developer is moving forward to partner with the city in completing part of this plan that we have or that we already have in place. So it's kind of a win-win for us in regard to the sustainability and, and preservation of our urban canopy, so it's, it's kind of exciting, actually. Thank you. Oh, thank you for your comments. Thank you so much. So the, the development review will be entirely conducted by the city of Des Moines and its um, permit and planners. Uh, we are following those developments. We'll follow whatever regulatory environment that they've placed. I think that the Panatoni team has already met with the city planning team and have been getting prepared for their applications. Uh, so they will be fitting into the existing master plan, our existing development agreements, uh, the Forterra plan uh, with the three-to-one uh, replacement, uh, parameters and working towards a completed project. So uh, go to the next slide. So usually this is the lead item. Um, I want to talk about the financial results 
of what uh, is intended here under this ground lease. Currently, we're noting 19.8 uh, uh, is the developable site area. As you recall from my presentation, there's a considerable buffer. Uh, this uh, set of parcels is actually uh, 29 acres, but uh, 19 is what we had forecasted when we put this together. It, the footprint may actually be a bit bigger uh, as they finalize their design um, with a potential building area of about 400,000 square feet as it stands today. Um, our results, $3.4 million annually um, with a calculated um, net present value of about $60 million according to our finance team. Uh, the cost basis, um, excluding the initial purchase with FAA funds, we note the $1.5 million investment, pre-investment that we made in the street improvements that Mayor Mahoney alluded to uh, that went back to 2018 uh, before we had acquired the SR509 property. So we purchased that, or uh, we gave funded that in tune of $1.5 million in 2018. Um, and then the parcel acquisition last year for 2.9, a little bit of pre-development work. Um, so um, cost basis is $4.6 million. Our yield, we calculate at 7.35 under the current uh, pro forma um, with a 75% um, seven, uh, yield after three, that's after stabilized income. Um, it's quite a rapid payback period. Um, I guess I've done a lot of real estate deals in my career. This is probably the best one I've ever done, but uh, I can't account for that. It's just high value um, and high integrity in this process. So that's what we're looking at. Um, you should expect the final result to shift a bit um, as we tighten up the development plan, but this is what we're recording today. Next slide. Just a little overview of the schedules I alluded to. We issued an RFP to find competitors for this ground lease in the last quarter of 2021. Uh, with your approval today, this sets the Panatoni team free to work towards permits and a groundbreaking, which they hope will conclude next year, um, with the then hoped for uh, construction happening in 2024. The uh, part of this schedule that is um, likely to shift is that permitting area. So if you see attenuation of this timeline, that's where you're going to find it. We've kept very much on pace with our initial um, schedule that we previewed for the RFP release. So uh, this is the hoped for conclusion um, with a lease up and occupancy sometime in 2020 if we can get through the permitting process. So I think we got one more slide. So just to recap, we are requesting the commission's authorization to execute the ground lease to allow the Des Moines Creek West development with Panatoni to proceed through permits um, and construction. It includes excellent community benefits um, such as jobs um, and various ecological enhancements, uh, MWBE utilization, a project labor agreement, and so forth. $3.4 million annually in revenues generated directly from the lease that will support aviation, division, and capital projects uh, with a hoped-for substantial completion in the first quarter of 2024. Next. Next slide. And now we are uh, up for questions. So thank you, commissioners, for your time. Thank you, Kira. Thank you, Dave. And I want to especially thank the honorables 
Mahoney and Buxton for coming out today. We, we truly appreciate your willingness to come down and, and share your opinions on it as well. With that, I'm going to turn it over to commissioners for questions and comments. Any commissioners have questions or comments on this? Commissioner Mohammed? Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you to um, Mayor Matt Mahoney for being here today and also um, Deputy Mayor Tracy Buxton. Thank you for being here and to our economic development team. Um, the city of Des Moines is a great place. I am a South King County uh, resident, so I might be a, a little biased. <laughs> But um, I love visiting the marina and being in Des Moines. Um, before the Port of Seattle, Des Moines is also a very um, important place because it is very much part of the airport community. Um, Des Moines uh, is, is part of our, our airport com community and we have a commitment to supporting their economic development um, plans and projects and um, the port recognizes that um, neighboring communities that experience um, more of the uh, impacts by our airport operations should also um, experience more benefits from the Port of Seattle. And I think this project in particular is one of those ways that we can do that and um, elevate that, that commitment to support their um, economic development projects. That said, I do have a couple of questions. Um, I wanted to uh, hear just a little bit about what considerations have been made regarding um, small minority and local owned businesses in the construction and op operations of this project. As, as uh, Carolee's mentioned, we have a WIMBY utilization goal. We haven't established the specifics as we get further into the um, design and specifics of the project. We will establish that. And that really is the way we will drive that partnership with small uh, women minority businesses. So they'll help build the project. Um, I, I can't really answer the question about tenancy, um, but we're certainly happy to work with Panettone and try and you know target small businesses and businesses that might need that space. Okay, thank you. Um, that's helpful. Um, and then how will this project impact the adjacent trail system? I know um, Mayor Mahoney spoke about that, but if you guys could elaborate, that'd be helpful. Sure. Uh, as we mentioned, really there is no access or no really improved access to the trail. It's a rough spot. And because it's not improved and it's not well lit, it's actually a source of challenges. Um, our, our police, the city's police, have been called in there numerous times to address um, safety challenges, public health challenges. And so by developing this parcel, we actually put a whole new access point to the trail a vastly improved, well-lit access. And as the mayor mentioned, this access point connects right back into the regional trail. I, I, I don't know how far, but maybe a quarter mile, half a mile at max. It's very, very close. I, I haven't walked it, so I admit that. But, but it's, it is, and, and I think that's a really good aspect of this project, in that you know, right now, no, it's not a good access, it's not safe. And now, with the project, it's gonna be much improved and really provide the community a benefit. And is the safety plan's gonna change 
I mean, obviously lighting it up and developing it will make a huge difference, but I'm just curious to hear if there's other sort of plans that are defer to the mayor on this one. Yeah. So as far as, as far as uh, accessibility, a couple, I'll answer the several questions you had. First of all, it connects to the Barnes Creek Trail, mm -hmm. which will lead up to Highline and to the light rail station. So there's a great connectivity for alternate sources of uh, transportation other than vehicles. Mm -hmm. As far as the fact right now is there's a lot of brush and overgrown and places for people to congregate and mm -hmm. hide and do the things we wish they wouldn't do, et cetera. This clears it up. It makes a beautiful path. Uh, safe for our children, our elderly, which we have considerable amount in the community. Uh, and what it does is give the line of sight that we've never had before in this particular area. And that's vastly going to improve um, the safety and security of our community. Thank you for those, those answers. That concludes my questions. Commissioner Cho. Yeah, I just want to say what's not to like about this project. I think it's... Uh, Terrific use of over resources. Uh, I did have a question. Do you know how much we bought the property for back in 93, the initial plan? I was not, a, you know, I think it was part of a larger package. I yeah. think it was hard to disaggregate given that was that long ago. And, so and, I, my research yielded not a conclusion that I felt comfortable sharing. Um, I'm sure inflation was so bad in the 90s. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think you mentioned that we had bought that initial land from the FAA with FAA funds. That obviously is my understanding with noise funds. Yeah. Have we obviously we've gone through the due diligence of making sure that the use of this property currently does not break any compliance requirements? That's right. On the in fact, I think it probably helped FAA that we had a commission meeting uh, coming up, uh, so we did get the release that we needed. Uh, there are still some FAA regulate, regulated regulated aspects of this project that have to do more with the building envelope and it's uh, how it conforms with the regulatory devices they have for protecting the airway, uh, the, the flight paths. So it will still have that review, but they don't have any particular claim on the financial result. Okay, great. Um, no, yeah, I think this is similar to you, the best real estate deal we'll ever do as a commission, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. Commissioner Fellman, do you have any comments or questions? I, I do. Thanks so much, uh, Mayor and Deputy Mayor and others who put this all together. Um, I, I see the uh, this is like one of those triple bottom line deals where we're promoting economic development with the community interests and the environment in mind. So, I, you know, this, as uh, Commissioner Cho said, it seems like there should be nothing uh, not to like. I also, but, you know, what as as a. Uh, Mr. McFadden said, you know, he hadn't walked the site. It seems like almost projects of this scale would be great to get an invitation to go and walk around. I certainly uh, got a much better appreciation for North SeaTac Park. Um, I'm sure I would see a different appreciation for this one. I, I do believe that it's kind of a little misleading to see the 1938 picture when, in fact, it seems like the the, the line around the the property. Um, I think it's on page five. Of the of the PowerPoint, it does seems like it's a completely green space at this point. But as you noted with red alder, their lifespan is you know rarely approaches a hundred. And if that was a 1938 picture, even the vacant spots would be uh, overly mature at this point. Um, but I think a uh, page five is that that's not page five. Oh, it's on my PowerPoint. However, uh, in the book, it's right after action requested. That's the 1938 shot. Um, I guess it was the second slide in the 
PowerPoint. I'm sorry, that must have been page two. That was there. Uh, that was it. So, I mean, I don't know whether that, it looks fully green inside. My, my point being that um, it's, a, it's a large and important piece of property that I'm, I'm, I would find it very interesting to just see how that trail weaves through it. I think that sounds, you know, very exciting. And I'm particularly appreciative of the fact that you're making use of the Forterra plan. I'm not one to second guess uh, foresters by profession. So knowing that that's all part of that planning also very much uh, makes me happy. If I, if I was to just try to find something to be critical of, because that's part of my job, right? Um, it's interesting. I, I know Forterra is not Forterra. But Panettone is like one of the premier developers. And I'm just wondering, um, do we have some sense of, and just adjacent to the site, of course, um, that they seem to have won a lot of our contracts, right? I've been reading the background. That is there, is there any, do we have any uh, sense of compulsion to intentionally share the wealth, as it were? Or they were just the most competitive bid, and therefore we have no choice but to do that? Thank you, sir. I'm happy to take that. So we issued an RFP at the end of the year last year. Um, we had seven solid proposals uh, in many factors in our scoring, which was peer scored. So we had people from around the port and ourselves involved in that uh, evaluation of various elements of the uh, RFP responses. They were clear head and shoulders above their competition. Always happy to share our scoring and our process with you. I, I'd only add to that. Um, Kira's right. There are a number of different criteria that we weighed as a team. Um, and in previous ground leases, we have not always selected the highest revenue recipient because we are looking at the full scorecard in terms of benefits to the port. And so I just wanted to add that. And like I said, I had no reason to believe they were uh, not worthy. And the fact that you say head and shoulders, all the better. Um, look forward to seeing the result. And congratulations on a long-term effort. Well done. Thank you. Okay. Um, my comments are, um, I'm just kind of going to pile on to the compliments. You know, our mission here is economic development. And here we have this project that is not only a real economic win for the Port of Seattle in terms of generating additional revenues and, you know, as we've all um, appreciated, very quickly uh, uh, paying for itself and then on into the future helping support other business operations of the Port of Seattle. But it's creating jobs in the city of Des Moines. It's creating a tax base for the city. That I had the opportunity three years ago to go down with the city manager and tour, beginning at City Hall, going up and, and seeing the, the FAA facility and then all the way down to the waterfront. They put together an excellent plan for their city and it's gonna take these kinds of developments to support that from a tax base. And so, uh, and I think, you know, part of it is that they've been very thoughtful about planning, saying there's a, a section that's gonna be a commercial industrial, there's gonna be a section that's gonna be waterfront, that's really for the enjoyment of the, of the citizens of Des Moines. So. Uh, this is pretty exciting to see this coming to fruition. And um, and in addition to that, the community benefits that have been outlined as well from sustainability initiatives to connectedness, it's an excellent project. So thank you all for putting this together. Yeah. With that, I'm going to ask commissioners if there is a motion and second to so approve this. Second. All right. Any further comments or questions from commissioners? 
All right, Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. For the vote, beginning with Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hoskawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. And with that, the motion passes. Thank you again, uh, Mayor and Deputy Mayor. Thank you. All right, at this time, Clerk Hart, can you please read the next item into the record? We'll then hear from Executive Director Metric to introduce it. Yes, this is agenda item 10C, authorization for the Executive Director to execute a joint partnership agreement with the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber, a nonprofit agency to develop and pilot a community business connector initiative for two years at a cost not to exceed $650,000, commission determination that a competitive process is not appropriate or cost effective, and exemption of the contract from a competitive process consistent with RCW 5319020. Commissioners, small businesses, especially women and minority-owned firms, have been hit hard by the pandemic. This new Community Business Connector initiative provides outreach and technical assistance to small businesses at a time when they may still be struggling. Our economic development team has been working with the Seattle Metro Chamber of Commerce for over a year on this initiative, and I'm pleased to support this. And, turn it, and at this point, I'll turn it over to Dave McFadden, Managing Director of Economic Development at the Port, who will introduce our presenters. Dave. Executive Director Metric. I am delighted to introduce this item. Let's go ahead and get the deck up. Um, I honestly think uh, in my time of port, this is some of the best work our division has done, bar none. Um, so we're asking for your support to authorize a new initiative we're calling the Community Business Connectors. Let's go to the next slide. Essentially, we're asking you to execute a partnership agreement with the Seattle Metro T Chamber uh, for two years in a total not to exceed $650,000 and also to waive our normal competitive process determining it's not appropriate or cost effective for this initiative. Um, what this will do is really jumpstart a broad um, and important outreach program to small businesses and I'll explain more here on the next few slides. A year ago, we knew that small businesses had been hit very hard at the beginning recession, and I think what Annie will say is that even though other other sectors and the community feel like we're more in recovery, I don't feel our small businesses are really there yet, and Annie has some data to share with you to sort of show that. So what we really want to do is fund some outreach and technical assistance by putting 10 to 12 business navigators out in communities across King County to find and help those impacted businesses and get them the resources they need to grow or just survive. This provides that significant technical assistance and outreach at a time when our federal and state resources are available. Um, but you know the story, if we go to the next slide, you know, the, these resources have been available before, but a lot of our BIPOC and women businesses in particular have been unable to access those or found it very difficult to access those resources. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, the Connector Initiative really is, it works like this little graphic. 
you have various different shapes and sizes of small businesses on the left, from a catering company to a welder. You know, some of them might need um, workforce or, or hire people. Others might just need a loan to get back up and running. The, the, the needs are there, and what the connectors do is help them really connect to the resources available, whether that's help from banks or the small business development centers or the Department of Commerce or workforce training providers. They are that connective tissue in the middle that's really, I think, going to add value and make a difference for our smaller businesses. Let's go to the next slide. So the connection really would be culturally knowledgeable advisors that can help businesses our underserved communities. This initiative is really built on successful-based community outreach. We started discovering this in working with our cities through a grant partnership. Tremendous outreach, tremendous work with community-based organizations during the first round of federal relief. What we're really doing by doing this regionally in a partnership is really bringing this up to scale and helping prevent the duplication of efforts and also leveraging the capacity of all the current partners in our small business ecosystem. So let's go to the next slide. I think this really represents a strong partnership. I think it's tremendously innovative. We have not done this. We've invented this from scratch. We had some models to look at from other areas. And most importantly, it's equity driven. So it's my pleasure really to turn it over to my colleague, Economic Development Manager Annie Tran, and she will turn it over to our partner, uh, Vaughn Taylor. Uh, and Vaughn is Vice President with the Seattle Metro Chamber. Annie. Thank you, Dave. And so we were really fortunate enough to have um, a, a, an advisory committee made up of 25 members who are deeply committed in working with us. It included city partners, community-based organizations, and technical assistance providers who are able to um, provide a lot, a lot of feedback during this process. In addition to that, we um, put out a business survey to understand the current business climate and some of the current challenges and needs that are immediately needed in the, in the next six months. And um, with that, we contracted with 10 community-based organizations to do targeted business outreach to ethnic and rural communities and translated that business survey into 15 languages. From that, we received 318 survey responses, so that was pretty impressive during a six-week timeline. This was live during the end of April to June, and um, we're just really proud of the work with our community partners um, alongside. We also hosted three uh, listening sessions with the Tabor 100, Korean Big Hug, and also the Snow Valley Chamber to collect more in-depth feedback and offer dialogue um, and have questions be answered during those ses sessions. So we're really grateful. Um, thank you, Commissioner Cho, for attending several of those listening sessions. We really appreciate your help with that. And um, here's a quick look at some of the demographic data from the survey responses. Next slide, thank you. Um, as you can see here, we heard back from a significant amount of South King County and East King County businesses, and the majority of folks who responded to the survey represented uh, minority-owned businesses. And so this is just a, a breakup and makeup of um, who had responded to the survey during this period. All right, next slide, please. And so from uh, our listening sessions, these are just a 
a couple of the testimonies that we heard from folks, they mentioned that there's been a wide array of relief programs, but it's a little hard to keep up to date with information, preparing applications, especially with linguistic and cultural um, challenges. And so having a resource like this, like the Community Business Connector program would be extremely helpful. We also heard that businesses are in dire need of people, money, and technology. Um, issues with equipment, software, supply chain, inflation, and um, just having general access to technical assistance programs would be wonderful. Next slide. So as Dave mentioned, we did survey businesses to understand how they're doing compared to a year ago, and nearly half of the respondents said that business is doing worse compared to a year ago. Next slide. We also wanted to understand the challenges that they're facing currently, and they were able to select multiple answers for this. They mentioned that loss of business, um, reduced income and unemployment, and simply not having enough customers during this time were challenges that they faced. Next slide. And in the next six months, what type of help did they need the most? They mentioned that applying for financial assistance and capital access to marketing and advertising, and also increasing sales uh, would be of help to them. Uh, 54 businesses also mentioned that um, having an understanding of how to apply for government contracts would be um, helpful to them, and so we are certainly working with our diversity and contracting team on that. Next slide. We also wanted to understand what some of the preferred languages of, of the business respondents were, and at the top, it was English, Korean, and Spanish. Next slide. We also wanted to understand that if community business connectors had the ability to um, speak multiple languages, would they use this resource, or if it was available in their preferred language? And nearly 70% of those folks who answered the survey said yes, they would use this resource. Next slide. And so with that, we also want to um, show a little short video um, introducing one of our partners in this work who helped us collect business surveys as well as host a listening session. And this is Lori Wada from Korean Big Hugs. Thank you. Mr. Commission President. My name is Lori Wada. Aubrey is going to pause it and let this video buffer for a moment. We found that it will work better this way. My name is Lori Wada. When pandemic uh, broke out in 2020, I was asked to help people applying for unemployment. These are the small business who were mom and pop operating. I could see them, them working day and night, um, almost seven days a week for just to survive, just to be able to send their children to higher education just to achieve their uh, American dream. I think that um, Port of uh, Seattle, the idea is really good uh, to have a business connector program. There's a connector program uh, could find a resource for them for their uh, needs, but also some legal advice or some uh, mitigator between the landlord and small businesses so they don't force to uh, uh, shut down and that really to me helped them survive survive barely but they survived 
So those are three things that I think Business Connector can play as a, a, a role to really uh, build the resiliency into those small businesses. Thank you. And so I just want to highlight that we're extremely lucky to have partners like Lori and others to help us with this endeavor and really engage the community of businesses during this process. And I'm just going to hand it off to Dave for one last statement. I just, I can't um, help myself. I'm going to give Annie a shout out and a kudo because she did this work on our community engagement. And as much as we had good evidence early in the pandemic that there were a lot of challenges, we needed to re-verify that. I think, as you know, and really get input around what specifically the Navigator program means to these communities. And so um, Annie did an exceptional job. And I guess uh, now that I've said that, I'd love to turn it over to Vaughn to continue our presentation. Sentiment of, of Annie's great work with the outreach. Uh, well, first, I just wanted to apologize for the present CEO. Um, Mike is a little far away from me. <laughs> present CEO, uh, Rachel Smith. Um, unfortunately, she was unable to make it because we we're actually having a, a board of trustees uh, board retreat today. And actually, I'm, I want to make my way over there after this presentation. But she absolutely wanted to be here. Uh, but in her absence, what I'll do is share some brief remarks from a formal letter that I can submit to um, the commissioners. And that would just correspond with the slide that we have up on the screen now. Okay, thank you. So um, we just wanted to start by saying over the course of the pandemic, uh, the chamber stepped in to provide a variety of supports to businesses who needed them. In the early days of 2020, it was mask and hand sanitizer. We all remember that, right? Uh, following that, it was connecting businesses to financial resources, uh, either through grant programs uh, available uh, because of the role of, of our associate development organization. So we're the, the designated ADO for King County, uh, funded by the State Department of Commerce. And through our pro bono uh, CPA services for small businesses to help um, access federal relief, uh, such as PPP loans. Uh, we continued on with that work, um, standing up vaccination clinics uh, to get our employees and customers vaccinated, especially in the early days of uh, the vaccine availability. And also we partnered with Public Health of Seattle and King County to help business comply with the new vaccine verification uh, requirements. So every step of the way, we've been listening to businesses. And to have this um, community uh, survey also help to inform uh, the program design. So from Rachel's standpoint, um, her leadership in coming to the chamber for about a year and a half now, it was two North Stars who wanted to kind of reimagine our economic development work. One is helping small and BIPOC businesses get the supports they need and technical assistance, but most importantly, doing our work sub-regionally so that it can be aligned with other regional partners such as the Port of Seattle. And with that, we believe the Connector program does just that. Um, I'll pause there, and then we can advance to the next slide. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to take a little bit of time than usual that I do on this slide because it's just a list of names. But what's important is about what's the consensus around, uh, among our stakeholders uh, uh, on this. So while the parallel of uh, doing outreach with uh, Port of Seattle, uh, the chamber also had a parallel run of working with uh, stakeholders within King County, which are city agencies like Issaquah, 
um, City of Bellevue, Kent and others, and CBOs like uh, World Relief, uh, African Chamber, and other TA providers. And we've come to an understanding that um, this program is important because it helps to preserve small businesses uh, to, to be better network support. That's number one. And secondly, we want to build trust, which is vital to uh, an effective small business ecosystem in King County. And with that, to crystallize what it is in a nutshell, is that uh, the Connector Program is a hub of trusted uh, business support liaisons in King County, cities, and neighborhoods. And what we found in our um, convening, that we're learning that what encompass a connector is that it's a, it's a trusted messenger, is also an ambassador, of someone who's from the community, who has, um, they have buy-ins to the community, also they care about the community. And then lastly, with our tools and our program framework, we're going to help them be navigators of resources um, and services within King County. So how will we deploy these um, connectors? Um, it's going to be a local business visitation program, um, and it's going to utilize a help desk uh, ticket system to coordinate small business support and in short. Um, so if we can advance to the next slide, I'll go into how the referral process would work. So uh, first it starts with the business owner. That's what this program is about. And we're going to use a tool, as I mentioned, a help ticket tool. And, that's, and when that uh, uh, need or request is generated, then we'll advance on to the connector that will then pinpoint specific needs from the initial inquiry um, from the help ticket. And then we will coordinate um, business services between uh, TA providers within our network. Uh, next slide. And what I just want to mention about the referral process um, is not only that we want to um, achieve efficiency, we also want to look at um, being equitable both on the side of the small business owner that has barriers to language, uh, culture, and also geographic location, but also equity on the side of making sure that it's a healthy ecosystem so that TA providers are also getting a fair share of referrals. So we're looking, up to, we're looking to, uh, present uh, a short list of options that accurately fit um, the need of the business owner. And what we have presented today is just the, the timeline going forward from program implementation, uh, which will start on August 1st with the uh, RFQ uh, webinar, which will talk about uh, much of what I discussed today, but more in detail about the process of the Connector program, how uh, trusted messages can apply, and then how we're going to train them and also work with support with outreach so that they're equipped to uh, make um, accurate re referrals. And that will happen around uh, the fall of this year once we make uh, selections of those applicants. Next slide. And this is just a timeline describing uh, what was just mentioned in the previous slide. Uh, next slide. Next slide, please. Well, at this point, I just wanted to make a highlight that um, at the point, uh, to make this all possible and to select and, and award our uh, connectors, um, we're proposing seven connectors within King County across 
at least three to five hubs. So right now we're designing that map where uh, the connectors can be placed geographically, but also be available by, let's say, by language or culture. So we want to make it not only geographically based, but community based based on those, those, those barriers. And by year two, we have a combined total at least 10 connectors in the field. They'll, again, uh, we're going to deploy a, a local business visitation model, and we hope to attract as many business owners as we can within that first year uh, so we can um, plan for future, uh, future work. So today's request obviously includes uh, the Port of Seattle's uh, contribution of 650000 and the chamber comes nearly close to that match, nearly 500000 over over two years. Um, maybe I'll call, pause here if there's any questions, but if that, we can... Do you have any more slides? Uh, I, th I think just the next next steps. Yeah, maybe just do that. And then yeah, just that next. Part. Okay, great. So, um, so to, just to recap for next steps, um, we're in the process of finalizing our, our RFQ and scope of services. Um, we actually want to have our second panel review um, from a third party, uh, stakeholders within uh, within King County to help us refine our approach. Uh, those would be like uh, SBDC, Small Business uh, Development Center, SCORE, um, World Relief, and others. And once we finalize that, um, with also visibility with both organizations from the port and also Chamber, their DEI department. So that's make sure we're hitting the target in terms of of the equity lens into the framework of the program. And lastly, develop those um, webinars and make sure that it's available for in-language support and everything else for uh, those to apply. Yeah, and and for us, you know, it's just supporting that chamber outreach. We're good at that. So we want to we want to really put that into high gear and make sure we are promoting this great opportunity. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely, Annie, will be on part of that RFQ selection team. Uh, we need to be in the room as those decisions are made. And then finally, we're going to execute a service agreement that really um, supports and underwrites this new partnership and initiative. So those are our things that we need to do next. And I think, uh, next slide, I think we're done and ready for questions. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vaughn, for... Uh, coming and presenting. Uh, thank you, Annie, for your presentation as well. And thank you, Dave. I'm going to turn it over to co commissioners for questions or comments. Um, just a few comments. Uh, I want to thank Dave and Annie and uh, Vaughn and Rachel Smith for all the terrific work they've done on this project. I have to say, uh, obviously, the impetus for this was the listening sessions we held during the pandemic, where we held over a dozen sessions with over 100 stakeholders. and. I think uh, after those listening sessions, Dave and I had a conversation about what more we can do post-pandemic, and there came the idea that we have this existing program that we can potentially expand and redefine, and so I appreciate you taking the, the you know, being creative and kind of pushing that um, within the organization. I also want to thank you so much for uh, including the community input. Uh, I think that was crucial in validating our hypothesis here that there was a need for something like this. Uh, I had the honor of joining two of the two of the three, I think, the first one in the last listing sessions with Table 100 and Snow Valley Chamber, and it was very clear to me as well that something of of sort of this sort was needed. Um, 
And so I just, you know, really quickly want to make sure for the public uh, and, and put it in a concise way of like what this is and what this is not. Uh, this is not an attempt to be redundant or step on anyone's toes. I know that um, one of the primary concerns of this program uh, initially was are we reinventing something that already exists? And I think it was uh, a, a valid question um, and it was clear from our conversations with local chambers and uh, business owners that this is something that really sits as an umbrella to a lot of the things that exist. Uh, and to that point, I just want to highlight that I think we are very blessed in King County to have a lot of resources. I think the resources that these businesses and uh, need are out there. I think what we needed for a long time is for an entity help to help us connect the dots so that when those businesses need something, they know who to turn to uh, and that person can then connect them with the right resources. And I think one of the things that stood out to me the most uh, uh, in the feedback was a small business owner at the Table 100 uh, meeting was like, I'm knocking on every door trying to look for opportunities, you know? And my response was, well, you shouldn't be knocking on every door, you should be knowing exactly which doors to knock on, right? And so I think this Navigator program is exactly what, uh, it, this is exactly what the Navigator program, program will, do, will do. And as we all know in business, time is money, and we want our small businesses owners to be very efficient with how they use their time. So thank you for, uh, for that. Um, lastly, I just wanted to say that uh, the survey response, I think, uh, 318 surveys responses in just six weeks might be a local municipality government record. I, I don't know how you all pulled that off, and in 15 languages, no less. Uh, so I think this is a terrific job. Um, and then lastly, I want to highlight for the public who may be interested in this program that although this is a program that we are asking Seattle Metro Chamber to help us with, it is not a exclusive or uh, limited to Seattle. Uh, and that it really is a greater Seattle program. And so just because you're a small business in Kent or in Tukwila or you know, up in Shoreline does not mean that you cannot reach out to the Seattle Metro Chamber for these resources. So I hope uh, folks understand that uh, and, and take full advantage of it. Happy to support, thank you. I might, as a clarifying question, Vaughn, are you, um, Greater Seattle Chamber of Commerce is the locally designated EDO, is that correct? That is correct. Can you yeah. explain what that is for everyone? Sure. So, so um, across, uh, King, um, across Washington State, uh, the State Department of Commerce uh, designates associate development organizations throughout the counties. Uh, the chamber, as I believe uh, it's been three years now, um, that we've been designated as the uh, King County ADO. What that means, in short, is the local economic development uh, partner for the State Department of Commerce. Thank you. And so that, to, to Commissioner Cho's point, sure. that is why their scope encompasses more than just the city of Seattle, but put the region generally, the county. Correct. Commissioner Hasegawa? Well, I just want to express how exciting I think that this program is, and I want to recognize the hard work and diligence that's taken place on behalf of staff in conjunction with the Seattle Chamber and others to make sure that this is a really intentional, meaningful, and inclusive program. Um, I also just want to add that I think that it's a really important component to the Port of Seattle being a responsive government. This is based upon expressed community need, and so I just really um, applaud this approach. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, Thank you so much for such a thorough, for providing such a thorough presentation. Um, 
I'm really pleased that we're going to be able to provide this resource to businesses in need. Um, as Commissioner Cho mentioned, there are um, other economic support um, operations being offered by the state or by local governments like cities. But um, for folks in unincorporated King County, they don't always have as many opportunities available to them. Um, King County often serves as their primary government. Um, but the Port of Seattle also is, despite its name, countywide. Can you describe for me what sort of outreach happened to unincorporated King County or engagement that's taken place to make sure that those businesses will also be able to be aware of and benefit from this program? Sure. I guess that would be a two-part response because of the outreach. So from uh, the chamber standpoint, also being designated ADO, um, I meet regularly with um, all the 30, well, 38 cities <laughs> in King County, um, along, in addition to uh, King County's uh, unincorporated air representative um, on, a, on a monthly basis. So that's one, and they are fully aware of the program that's happening around connectors. Uh, secondly, and more specifically, uh, we also have um, those individuals sitting on our program design group um, who are also informing um, where the uh, best or select areas for hubs uh, across King County for the connectors. Thank you. In terms of eligibility to participate in this program, um, we know that this is countywide and that there's a concerted effort happening to unincorporated King County. Does that preclude Seattle-based minority businesses in historically redlined neighborhoods like the CID or the CD from accessing this program and benefiting from what it has to offer? So uh, the answer is not at this moment uh, because it's a King County program ex excluding Seattle. However, um, we're talking to the city of Seattle about how it could be incorporated into their ongoing uh, business outreach efforts. So that discussion is happening. Okay. Um, to be in partnership with the Port of Seattle um, in response to what we've heard from um, a need in communities and small businesses and minority-owned businesses, um, it seems to me that it might also make sense to make this as a resource available to ACDBEs operating at our own front yard. Yeah. Do they have eligibility for this program at this time? Yes. It, it, as we developed this program, it gave us our own thoughts of, wow, we have our own constituents. And why can't we also access the navigator? And so a perfect example might be an electrical contractor in Tequila who has limited English abilities, but really is interested in the government contracting opportunity with us, but needs the navigator's help to really connect the dots and break the opportunity down into something understandable. So yes, we see opportunities there. That's really great to hear. So in terms of how the program actually functions, you mentioned that there will be seven partners. Are those community-based organizations, nonprofits? Tell me about a little bit of the criteria for those partners. Sure, so the connectors will be seven in the first year, mm -hmm. and those connectors will be selected and funded through the RFQ process. Uh, there will be either individuals or organizations typically uh, uh, CBOs or TA providers. Um, 
they will be designated as the connectors within King County across uh, at least five different hubs. That's wonderful and really lives the spirit of what you described as a trusted messenger. Where in the, your evaluative criteria does language access services fall when you're considering who these seven partners will be? Yeah, good question. Um, because we all know seven is not enough. It's a nice number for completion, but um, we have identified as a group between organizations and with our program design committee that not only, as I mentioned, geographic location is important, but also, let's say if we have someone uh, who's situated maybe in South King County, but they happen to speak Spanish, we can utilize their cultural uh, background and also their language capability to help someone on the north side, for example, yeah. um, even though they're based um, in South King County. I think that that's a really important um, strategy, recognizing that the language barrier can oftentimes be more significant than the geographic barrier, particularly in a virtual age. Um, so if one person in one place can provide language access, why not to the full footprint of the program? Um, but that there is so much language diversity in King County, um, I can tell you um, that I know as far as the Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community as a conglomerate speak a hundred languages to say nothing of the thousand, over a thousand dialects. So language access is so challenging. In the in, during the pandemic, in, in, by 2021, we learned that um, only all but three Cambodian-owned businesses went under. And that's because even if there is um, an Asian chamber, for example, they don't necessarily provide the institutional expertise or the language access to those small business owners. So language access is such a huge piece, and it is a tremendous challenge as institutional actors in trying to think of the strategies on how to serve diverse populations. So that's why I raised that question up here, because I know there's been critical thought behind that on behalf of the staff, thinking of how to make a meaningful program that is effectively not duplicative. Um, so, and really making sure we're casting as wide a net as possible to people that might benefit from it. Um, so, um, so I just want to reiterate that as a huge piece of why I support this program, um, and and just how important I think that that language access is. And I had one other question that I know I'll remember as soon as I stop talking. <laughs> so I'm going to see my time. I'll you a break, and we'll come back to you. How's that? <laughs> All right, Commissioner Mohammed. Um, First, I just want to start by thanking our economic development team, uh, the Seattle Chambers of Commerce. I was just speaking to Rachel Smith yesterday, the CEO there, and really appreciate the leadership at the, the chamber in helping support this community navigator model. I also want to thank um, Commissioner Cho's leadership during the pandemic in um, really making sure that small businesses that have been impacted by the pandemic was front and center in our conversations. Um, you know, over 40% of 
businesses in the United States are, are small businesses and they are the backbone of our economy. And so ensuring that we are doing what we can to support them is, is important. Um, and that's, you know, small businesses owned by women, people of color, veterans, um, they've all are businesses that have been hit the hardest by this pandemic. And so um, I really do appreciate this model around community, a connective navigator model. And it's one that um, we are seeing happen even in the healthcare space, this idea of um, bringing trusted community members to the table and helping help having them help government navigate the real complex systems that exist. And so um, it's great to see that um, being implemented in the business space. Um, that said, I, I do have a, a couple of questions around um, the stakeholder meetings. Mr. Taylor, maybe I'll direct this to you. Um, I know you said that there are a lot of stakeholder meetings that are happening, that this sounds like the city and the county are among the folks that are um, at the table. Um, I wanted to know how often are those meetings happening, if you could just share a little bit around that. And will there be any additional non-port Fundings, um, funds coming from um, some of those stakeholders and what those numbers may look like? Sure. So our um, meetings, I think they started around April or May, and we have about a dozen meetings, meeting at least twice a month. Then we have some also uh, meetings in between time for more uh, targeted kind of topics about the program design. Um, as I mentioned, is, is a few uh, cities within King County, as long as, uh, and they're mostly um, government leaders in economic development, just to be specific about the city agencies and also CBOs and TA providers. Um, as to how we project or see cities kind of uh, buying in or investing into this program, um, we have a handful right now who have committed, um, and that's that would reflect roughly 30,000 um, in investment to the, the program itself. Um, but we do foresee more um, investment from cities uh, once we roll out the program and project in 2023 uh, to do more outreach and actually give value to cities who are benefiting from the upfront costs of the uh, chamber in the port. Great, that's, that's helpful to hear. Um, the other question um, that I had, or maybe it's honestly, I'll, I'll just uh, just say it. A concern that I have is around um, the connectors. It looks like it's seven connectors, um, 0.5 FTE, and I heard that um, some of the people that will be eligible to apply is not just CBOs, but it's also individuals, mm -hmm. and um, that's a little concerning to me. I think it's it's important for folks to have one job. As somebody who has two jobs, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and for our community navigators, yeah. I might be in a very privileged position to be able to maintain two two jobs. Sure, um, that's a real challenge, and it's not um, a practice that I support. That individuals should have to work multiple jobs and these contract sort of positions that we often um, put communities in is, is one that's challenging. And so I want you guys to be mindful of that piece. And um, and I don't know if there's like a model that's attached to that, if this is like an individual that's a consultant connected to 
other sort of work. Um, but if it's not, I think it's one that you guys should tread lightly around. Sure. And we uh, equally have that concern if we actually heard that from some TA providers about the number of hours and um, the, the engagement, the number of engagement they can have with business owners because of the uh, compensation to a part-time uh, person. Um, we hope we have two remedies to that. One, we hope that organizations that we do fund um, for the connector, they will have some capacity and could add a, a bump to that salary or support in some way if they hire someone from the community, that's, that's one, or a subject matter expert, something of that type. Uh, second, uh, we also hope that the trusted messengers are people who are already active in communities doing what they already do and they feel like they have time and capacity to commit to the communities in this different way. So is there a shop owner that has a part-time business, if you will, mm -hmm. or a side hustle? Is this a community leader that's very active already and they're doing tremendous work and they're not getting paid already? This can be a boost to add um, value to their um, status as a uh, trusted individual in their community. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we hope and we'll evaluate that in our scoring metric when we look at the applications. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And I'm glad that you guys are already having some of those conversations. I was actually speaking of those scoring metrics. Um, what are some of the success metrics that you guys will be applying to this program? Sure. So uh, first goal is getting our seven <laughs> connectors. So so we want to uh, get as many applications as we can we can handle and uh, screen them properly. Again, with an equity lens and a, a fair equitable process. Um, doing that first. Um, second, bringing that group together to form a uh, program uh, orientation and not just a, a way of just speaking at them. It's about helping them understand the landscape of what's going on in King County around resources and most importantly, introducing them to the cities, those local government leaders, economic development, the TA providers, so on and so forth. So making it more of a gathering of community, that's a win. And then by the end of the year, we hope to at least start building a database with each um, connector, at least 25 um, businesses in their community, and then start to roll out what is our outreach strategy with uh, the port, at least seven um, workshops and outreach activity along with training, and then we'll talk about converting those, uh, <laughs> those that database and to actually referrals. So we're still thinking about that at the moment. Uh, but I, I think I can add some dimension here. That ticket's really important for customer service, but it's also a great accountability measure yep. because that's how you track it, yep. okay? And earlier in our city grant program, we have funded Startup 425. They have a ticket program, and at the end of the year, I get great reports. This is how many customers, this is what happened, this is how many got referral to loan programs, to referral to other sources of assistance. So that is really the centerpiece of this ticket system, and it's not, again, just customer service. It also allows us to be accountable. That's really helpful. Thank you both for that answer. Um, lastly, uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, both Commissioner Cho and myself sit on the Equity and Workforce Development um, Committee for the Commission, and we're discussing uh, setting up a Small Business Recovery Ad Hoc Committee. Um, this is a program that we want to follow very closely um, and see how it's, it's developing, and I think it's also um, important to have some sort of connection to our offices, our offices um, 
equity and inclusion um, department and, and uh, be in communication with them around some of the strategies that are gonna be implemented. I think now more than ever, it is so important that we're in coordination and our organizations are communicating with each other regularly. And so I look forward to just learning more about what the collaboration looks like and um, who these seven individuals end up being or organization. Again, thank you guys for your, your leadership on this. All right, and I'm going to give Commissioner Hasegawa her second bite at the apple, and then I'm going to turn to Commissioner Fellman. I promise to keep it quick. Um, so in terms of the, um, the ticketing process, I guess I just want to formally request that we collect the information through that ticket at the front end about preferred language. Mm -hmm. And then if, um, if you know, tickets fulfilled is a measure of performance, um, I hope that there will also be future flexibility in the program to evaluate what sort of services we provide um, and how we provide those services. So um, an ongoing educational evaluative process internally as service providers in conjunction with those, those seven connectors. I think it's going to be really important flexibility to the emerging and evolving needs, especially given the population growth of the area and the change of, of the business landscape. So I just want to say happy that you said that. One of the goals I didn't mention, forgot, but you jogged my memory, is that we want to form a task force to actually oversee this program going forward so we can modify it as we go, which is best practice when we talk about any um, business visitation program and BRE. It's very important to have um, kind of an oversight uh, to the programming. And to the point about uh, the metrics, uh, we will have a dashboard and we're developing a scorecard, which, you know, takes some time to perfect, but uh, that would be a component of the help ticket. All right. But that actually was not the question that I remembered that I forgot. Okay. Um, okay. So that was just, uh, um, anyways, um, something that I talked about with CEO Smith and also Executive Director Metric that I just thought I would, I would float by you is just in consideration of the pandemic um, and how it really highlighted the need, the critical need to access to healthcare for a larger population and the role that an employer has in American society in creating that bridge to healthcare. Um, and then just reinforced uh, with the Supreme Court decision about how vital that healthcare access is. One of the things that I really appreciate about the Seattle Chamber is that that's one of the things you do as an entity is you connect businesses to um, healthcare options that they can provide to their workforce. And um, knowing the disparities um, in race and in gender and in ethnicity um, in health that we observe in our communities, is there, and, and also the, the equity, the core equity element to this program. Is there room through this program to help our businesses have access to an insurance plan that they can provide to their workers? And is that something that we can be intentional around also putting our resources and our efforts behind? Um, so I don't obviously don't expect anyone to have an answer for that today, but I do think it's really important that we think about this as an opportunity. Well, one way I, I can connect uh, that is once we get a better handle on efficiency, um, and also we know equity is a part of the program design, um, and 
and because the program framework focuses on putting boots on the ground, visitation to businesses, and we all know when you talk to small businesses, it's not just their business concerns, it's their challenges personally, and that's oftentimes intertwined. Health is one of those. Um, once we understand how to better get the information out to business owners, then we can take on opportunities to say um, there's a health institution that wants us to pr promote um, eligible health care, I don't know, benefits for uh, individuals that fit this criteria. There's no reason why that couldn't be coupled with other information that we're sending to business owners about access to capital and the like. And I'd only add, it is about trust. Yeah. And once you start developing that rapport and providing customer service, well, you know, I, I helped this person get to a bank and they got some funding and they raised some issues about HR and people. That's an opportunity. Yeah. And I just think, it, in my experience doing a lot of this outreach and talking to business owners, I'm keen to listen to what their needs are, but also as you develop that rapport of trying to help them and educate them on how to do better or take advantage of some great resources out there. So I, I think we can do that. It just, um, it, it will take some thought and some intentionality. You're right. Yeah. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Well, I do greatly appreciate my colleagues raising all these points and don't need to be overly redundant. I do see that uh, there's a great reflection of uh, very much a lot of thoughtfulness and the partnership with the chamber really does seem to flesh out the great work that the economic development program has been doing for these years. So I, I feel quite confident in, uh, in the intent as well as the uh, uh, means of implementing this program. I do want to uh, having said that, uh, elevate the concern or issue that Commissioner Muhammad raised. You know, while the Port of Seattle is all about creating quality jobs, um, it often doesn't include the commissioners, or we're asking the same thing of the navigators to go and help other people get their quality job while paying them half time. And so I think the expectation is very high. And I think, as, uh, as was stated, that hopefully these people are in the position to be able to have the ability to do that. It is a, uh, like public service, somewhat of an act of love. And uh, hopefully the, we will not be putting them in undue stress to accomplish this uh, worthy work. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Um, so <laughs> I, this has been an interesting conversation for me. In my background, Vaughn, we haven't met before, but uh, I was a small business owner for over a dozen years and then uh, moved into a role as a business coach for uh, one of the uh, technical assistance CBOs that you'll probably uh, hear from in this, uh, a group called Ventures. Okay. And uh, so hearing this whole conversation, I kept trying to wear the hat of both my former colleague Beto Yarse at Ventures and myself as a small business owner, what would this look like as a as a potential customer of this program? And then what would this look like as a nonprofit director trying to maybe apply for these dollars and then incorporate it into the programs that they're already running? And so a few kind of questions came out of it. The first is, honestly, you know, even in a small organization like Ventures, which had, you know, roughly 10 programmatic people and then 10 folks that did administrative or, or managed the retail store. Uh, this is a pretty small uh, drop in the bucket of their, you know, you know, some 300 
100K a year in terms of um, what look like salaries and benefits for the, the navigators. So one of these organizations could easily swallow up this program and, and yeah. do it. And so the idea, I think, of having multiple, I'm a little skeptical of the idea of multiple awards to multiple organizations. I understand the value of that would be, you know, getting out into more communities. What I, what I might suggest, and I hate getting into details because I know we're supposed to be high level for you guys, but um, is that we might think of this as a pilot, mm -hmm. as an opportunity to try it with one focused community. We had a really interesting survey. There's obviously some sampling bias there because we got a ton from some communities, none from some others. Uh, maybe we, since there seems to be real interest and passion, maybe we work to say, let's really focus this on a particular area so we can do it well and do it right and then replicate and go bigger and be able to go out to those municipalities that seem to be reluctant to fund it right now and say, look, look what we did in this place. Now we want to do it tenfold throughout the whole community. Um, the second thing I want to think about is, are, do we envision these navigators as lifeguards or swim coaches? And what I mean by that is, do these people swoop in when a business is in trouble, rescue them, so to speak, or help rescue them, or do they come alongside in good times and bad and say, we're going to help you sort of like an ongoing navigator support person? Are they a swim coach that says, let's, let's help you learn how to do this before you get into trouble? And I think that's going to really impact program design. Mm -hmm. that if you think about this navigator as a swim coach, then we need to be thinking about okay, the funding needs to be not just two years, but oh, we got yeah. we better figure out that funding model quickly. Uh, if we think of it as a lifeguard, then you know I think that's a different story. But it also you know it's really going to change what our impact sure. looks like too. You know that's um, and and probably. Um, our results would be as ephemeral as the, the initial support. So yeah. um, I'm encouraged to hear, I, you know, I think there's a lot of organizations doing this kind of work and I know, I, you know, based on who you had on the advisory board, I, I think you've got their input. Uh, folks like Business Impact Northwest and SCORE uh, have lots of, of years spent doing this kind of work in our community. So. I think you're, you're probably well informed on all these things. I'm going to support this because I, I think anything we can do to uh, help support Wimby businesses, micro businesses, which I think this is predominantly geared toward, um, as a both just a general economic development opportunity, also as a pipeline into the kinds of uh, relationships we want to have with small businesses in our community, either as tenants at the airport, contractors for projects that we're we're building out. Um, tenants in our maritime facilities. I, you know, I want to see us developing that pipeline, particularly amongst the Wimby business community. So thanks for the presentation. Uh, at this time, are there any further questions or comments from commissioners? All right. Uh, I, I have one more question. Sorry. Is, is there, may I? Yeah, please. So I heard you say this is geared towards small businesses, but actually micro businesses will be eligible to participate as well correct okay is there like a a top end of size li, a no. size limit for eligibility no we don't necessarily have a profile for what's considered small business we all know that's all over the place and large in scope um, but i think the way to think about it because it's a community uh focus um business navigator program we should think of more as neighborhood level um and also that also 
continue, that continue also means mobile businesses, home base, things of that sort. So I'll say that, that category. Yep. All right, do we have a motion and a second? So moved. A second. Clerk Hart, can you please call the roll for the vote? Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Cho. Yay. Thank you. Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, four ayes, a yay, and zero nays. <laughs> <laughs> to be specific. <laughs> and uh, with that, the motion passes. All right. Thank you so much for coming to present. Thank you. Uh, we're now moving on to item 11, um, and these are presentations and staff re reports. Clerk Hart, can you please read the next item into the record? Yes, this is agenda item 11A, Maritime Blue Annual Report. Commissioners, three years ago, the Port of Seattle executed a memorandum of understanding with the Washington Maritime Blue, a nonprofit organization charged with implementing Washington State's strategy for the blue economy. Since that time, Maritime Blue has grown and matured. Our partnership is making great strides in advancing development of Washington's blue economy. Over the past few years, we've had, we've joint, have jointly launched the successful Maritime uh, Innovation Accelerator, expanded the Youth Maritime Collaborative Workforce Development Initiative, and other efforts to advance sustainability within the maritime industry. We appreciate the, the partnerships with Maritime Blue, and especially with uh, President Joshua Berger and his entire team. Uh, the future of maritime industry is sustainable and free of carbon, and Maritime Blue will help us get there. Uh, Dave McFadden will introduce the briefing and our guest presenters. Dave. Good afternoon, Commissioners and Executive Director Metric. I'm very pleased to introduce this uh, briefing. Um, we've been working with Maritime Blue from the beginning. It was three years ago, as uh, Executive Director Metric mentioned, we um, put together an MOU. At that point, I swear the ink on the nonprofit organization papers was still drying. So this is a very, very young organization, and we took a leap of faith in that partnership, and we've realized nothing but benefits over the last three years. This organization has grown magnificently over the last three years. I am so impressed. Um, I was going, I was smiling because I go, it feels almost like a teenager, but they're only three years old. And, and so that's the amount of progress they've made in that short time. They have a fantastic board of directors. Um, they've benefited from Fred's, uh, Commissioner Fellman's participation. Stephanie Jones-Stebbins also is on the board now. They've got a great staff. I enjoy working with Joshua. He's an outstanding leader. And again, um, they're producing substantial, impactful work. And you're going to hear all about that today. And um, it's really important and even essential to our future here at the port. And so it's my pleasure to really turn it over to Joshua at this point. And I, I should make sure we've got some slides here. We'll run through the first one. I uh, Let's go ahead and advance the slide. We'll get to Joshua's. So yes, um, great partnership. Let's keep going. And now Joshua. Yeah, we can start there. Thank yeah. you, Dave. Thank you, commissioners. Um, and Executive Director Metric, uh, it was remarking as we came in, uh, I think it's, it was when we signed that MOU the last time I was actually in this room in person. We've met a number of times and with the commissioner, but through the pandemic, we have done 
the lion's share of the work of the organization through the pandemic, which has been really interesting uh, to learn about our process. And um, yeah, Washington, my, I'm Joshua Berger. I'm uh, President and CEO of Washington Maritime Blue. Uh, and this whole adventure really started about five years ago or so um, with the port. In my former role as the governor's maritime sector lead, we were really looking on how um, uh, we could benefit from the incredible assets across our region to grow a more sustainable, innovative, and equitable maritime industry, and broadly, ocean and maritime industry, which is what we call the blue economy, hence where now I, all I wear is blue. My um, wife <laughs> pointed that out to me again this morning. It's, oh, damn. Um, uh, and it really was the notion is how are we going to support maritime innovation? We came to Dave and we're thinking about a maritime innovation center. It was um, sort of the top of my list uh, as an edict from the governor to be thinking about. Uh, and instantly we found and coalesced around how we do innovation. What that led to in the last five years was uh, the first and still really only comprehensive statewide strategy for the blue economy. That was led by the governor's maritime innovation um, uh, council at the time. And after about 18 months, sort of simultaneously discussions with the port and many stakeholders or partners across the region uh, about the idea of a maritime innovation center and how far we've come there as well. Um, we produced uh, this state strategy and quickly realized that somebody actually needs to do it. Um, my line often is that a strategy is as good as its graphics unless somebody's doing something about it. Um, we looked around the globe at other centers of excellence and this thing, the blue economy, that was growing rapidly at the time and uh, saw this thing, this mechanism called an innovation cluster organization, which is, we, we talk about the quadruple helix, but it's really just an entity that can bring together public-private partnerships with communities and research institutions, uh, NGOs, the private sector, and the government sector to accelerate our mission. And here, it's around a sustainable and equitable maritime industry. Um, so we formed as an organization just over three years ago, uh, and it, we're, we're, we have been doing a ton alongside partnership with the port and so many across the state, across the country, and really across the globe. Um, we can go to the next slide. I want to get to quick our team uh, to talk about um, the great work we're doing. But I will say over these last three years, we've grown to be uh, just over 135 members. Members is a broad term. It's not just our industry members, which range from global technology developers down to one-person engineering shops and startup organizations. But our major research institutions, all of our public partners that uh, range from ports and municipalities and transit authorities to all of our community partners as we grow. I can't even keep up with my team the logos that should be going on this slide. It's already week after week. Um, it needs to be updated. Um, next slide, please. There's a breadth of what we do as an innovation cluster organization. Um, we foster collaboration. This is where our members come together in what we call joint innovation projects, and I'll talk about those uh, in a few minutes. Uh, it's where we actually do stuff, and it could be a feasibility study, it's actually, or it's building something. Um, where it benefits from collaboration, where it benefits from a research institution, a public partner, a private funder, a public grant, all the different value chain of the technology development that comes together. Maritime Blue acts as a convener, and sort of we're using the word dot connector and catalyst for members to come together to accelerate that work. We're a partner for accessing capital. It could be our startups, it could be projects and our members. Uh, we hold knowledge sharing events. 
we engage globally with partners everywhere from Singapore to Korea, Norway, Finland, France, um, to foster innovation across the globe. We often say, and the UN says and reminds us that there is one ocean, and so there is just one blue economy. Um, we are focused on supporting startups and entrepreneurs. We do that in a variety of ways, and our Blue Venture Program uh, Director, Josh Carter, will come on in just a moment and give you the update on the Maritime Blue Innovation Accelerator, as well as the other sort of hub-and-spoke uh, programs that we've been running over the last three years and uh, are getting underway. Uh, and then, of course, uh, how we focus on equitable communities, particularly around helping to support and create equitable pathways into the maritime and ocean workforce. And we do that through a number of different mechanisms. It has been primarily the Youth Maritime Collaborative, which enjoyed support from the Port of Seattle, but that has expanded into our Youth Maritime Accelerator Project, our Youth Summer Internship Programs, our year-round um, uh, cohort programs as well. And we'll go into some detail of each of those. And I'll round out as well uh, in talking more just about the sustainability and growth of us as an organization. Yes, we feel like a teenager, right? You're at that middle school time, and I have teenagers. Um, we're like one foot's bigger than the other, and you're feeling a little awkward in a room, but we're, 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 um, uh, we have a strong level of sort of self-confidence, and it's because um, of the partnerships that we enjoy really around the region and, and around the globe as we're growing. Um, I think, next slide, please. I'm going to turn it over to Josh Carter, who is on Teams who runs all of our entrepreneurship programs and um, is the master behind the Accelerator program, which just cleaned up as well. Josh, I'll turn it to you for the next few slides. Thanks, Joshua. Uh, thank you, commissioners. I apologize for not being there in person, but thank you for the opportunity to give you an update about what we've been doing. As you can see here, uh, the last three years, we've been busy. We've been really, uh, we'll talk a little bit about our impact here in a moment, but uh, we've been busy uh, helping a, a tremendous amount of startups grow their businesses. And uh, startups is a pretty broad term. Uh, and and in, the, in the broad scheme of things, it could be, you know, very early stage companies trying to figure out their product market fit to companies getting ready to, to really scale and go into their growth. Um, we've seen, I'll call out a few uh, individual companies, uh, companies like Discovery Health, who went through our first program who were instrumental in, in helping the fishing industry throughout Seattle and the region uh, by opening their doors and, and having COVID clinics for the fishing industry. Um, a team that has grown beyond 200 people at this point. Uh, just a few years ago, they were a very, very small team. Uh, other uh, call-outs, Pure Watercraft just got a tremendous uh, investment from GM uh, General Motors for more than $120 million. They took about 25% of the company and now they're out building uh, outboard electric motor boats or motor engines for uh, pontoon pleasure crafts and growing rapidly. Uh, others, um, Silverback Marine, um, uh, we helped them relocate and find uh, an amazing facility that actually ended up being a facility that the founder's grandfather had been at uh, during World War II when he was in the military. And just a tremendous amount of uh, impact that this program is having on founders, whether it's growing their business, finding investors, or, uh, or just um, uh, finding product market fit. Uh, next slide, please. So to take a step back, the, the main program for, for what we run is the, uh, the Accelerator. It's the one that um, we've had tremendous support uh, from the Port of Seattle. It's a four-month based uh, Accelerator. We focus in on um, how do we 
take some of the challenges that they're coming in with and, and match them with subject matter experts that can help grow their business. And so we, we spend an awful lot of time on some fundamental things like uh, helping them tell their story or financial modeling or customer acquisition or even business partnership. But for the most part, um, we take the, the founders as they come in, we figure out what it is that they're struggling with and, and we build a curriculum uh, as, as we go. So as a result, the two, no two programs are exactly alike, uh, but it also means that we have the maximum amount of impact we possibly can by putting them together with amazing people. Uh, we also have the incubator down in Tacoma, which is more focused on port operations. It's very much a geographical focused uh, a program. And then as Joshua mentioned, we have our hub and spoke model, which is where we are creating a center of knowledge in the centerpiece uh, where we share resources and, and uh, share sort of startups and, and mentors and open source our playbook uh, with other programs, partner programs, whether it's the Northwest Innovation Resource Center up in Bellingham or Northwest TechBridge or NavalX or CleanTech Alliance. We're really building this consortium of West Coast programs that are really having a huge impact uh, regionally and throughout our state. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned, uh, our mentors really make up the secret sauce of what we do. And, uh, and so we bring in tremendous amount of, of broad knowledge, whether it's, you know, how to tell your story effectively or Meta World Peace, who played for the LA Lakers, come in to talk about mental health and how to balance your mental health or uh, creating a, a sustainable, diverse culture in your workforce. These are all upskills that we teach within the accelerator for these founders, um, for them to understand how they can take this idea and scale it up and grow their business. And as you can see on the right, uh, we've had a tremendous amount of um, amplification in the press uh, for our startups. Uh, Allisense uh, on the right there, they went through our program last year, recently got a huge uh, investment from um, Virgin Galactic founder uh, Richard Branson and one of the Uber co-founders, and they're scaling like crazy. Um, and it's really been fun to watch them grow. Um, and, and our last uh, cohort uh, was in the press as well, and, uh, and we had a great time uh, with that cohort as well. Next slide, please. So um, collectively, we've had a lot of impact um, overall. So as you can see, we've uh, engaged with over 35 startups uh, 32 are from the U.S., 18 from Washington State, 15 from King County, uh, 18 women founders, 12 BIPOC founders, and we know we can do more there. Um, you know, we all know that the maritime industry is really struggling not only with attrition in the workforce, but just be, not being a very diverse industry overall. And and uh, we do this work through that lens. How can we get access to to more communities? How can we help those communities? How can we do more uh, for those communities? And that starts with building an infrastructure that supports them better. So we're actively working on more programs that we can do to support them, whether that is through top of funnel programming like hackathons or having an industry come to us and say, this is what we're challenged with. And then going back to entrepreneurial minded uh, folks who wanna build a business and saying, here's some challenges. Um, this is all work that we're doing uh, on top of the work we do with our programs. Um, overall, we've seen um, a lot of capital investment into these companies, more than $265 million. I think that's uh, over $300 million at this point. Uh, we've had three exits, uh, companies that have either been acquired or, or been sold um, bo both ways there. Um, several 
customer acquisitions, demonstration projects, and, uh, and well over 500 increase in revenue and 400 jobs created throughout the region. Again, I, I can't stress this enough. I know that, that I'm sort of being redundant here, but the program has been wildly impactful and, uh, and we see this as just the beginning. Uh, next slide, please. So that leads me really well into what we're headed to now. So what's next? You know, we, we have uh, an amazing uh, program down in uh, Tacoma, and now we're talking about building an incub incubator program for Seattle. And the difference there being is an incubator is more of, hey, I've got this great idea. I don't really know what to do with it. I need some help and some guidance. And the Maritime Blue ecosystem can really help in that way. We can take those early ideas and say, this is how you can get your first customer. This is how you really think about taking this thing from zero to scale. Um, and so the incubator program is a great feeder um, from the incubator into the accelerator. And we've actually had companies go from our accelerator into our incubators uh, in some cases. We're also really excited about this One Ocean Accelerator. Joshua kind of touched on this, the One Ocean um, being one blue economy. Well, we took that and sort of said, well, why don't we do an accelerator? We've had a lot of interesting uh, inbound interest from companies all over the globe. Uh, for the second cohort, we had a company from Montreal, uh, Canada. And this last cohort, we had interest from companies from Singapore. So we kind of took that idea and we took a conversation that uh, Commissioner Cho and Joshua and I had back in February and we said, this could be something. And so we've connected with uh, South Korea, Singapore, Finland, Norway, and most recently Chile to create this One Ocean Accelerator where uh, international companies come to us for, for eight weeks of online programming, four weeks of in-person uh, programming for the, for the purpose of figuring out how they can expand into Washington state. This is not a program that's often been tried. A lot of international programs, they go to those countries uh, with the purpose of trying to figure out how to connect the dots. But we're bringing them here, which is which is just amazing, and we're really excited. We're signing, we're getting ready to sign the first contract, and we we know that more will come. So we think ten companies will go through that program as a first wave. Um, we're also, like I mentioned, keep, we're keeping up this collaboration thanks to efforts by uh, Dave McFadden. You know, we're connecting dots between uh, Anchorage and San Diego and Oregon and California, and, and bringing everybody together. Uh, we're going to do a Blue Ventures Alumni Summit, and part of the sort of beginning of that summit in October is bringing everybody together in one room is sort of like this board meeting. Like, how can we better be more deliberate about uh, the programming we do? How can we be more deliberate about open sourcing what we do as a curriculum? How can we open source our mentorship? How can we be more deliberate about what we're doing to have a better impact overall? And so I'm really excited that October 3rd and 4th, uh, we're going to invite all of the alumni from our accelerator, our incubator, and some of our partner programs to Seattle uh, in the effort to uh, further uh, increase the, the buildup uh, in their company. So I'm really excited. I, I think that uh, 2022 has been a, a phenomenal year. It's been a really interesting year so far. We learned a lot this last year as the world was reopening. We had founders kind of going to customer sites. We went to Norway in April for North Shipping and uh, so it's been a, a learning lesson these last three years, and I think the fourth year, the fourth wave is just going to be absolutely phenomenal as we think of more ways we can increase our impact, ways that we can um, even try funding these companies ourselves uh, through investment vehicles, I think is is probably the next step that we're going to be trying to figure out uh, here in the next few months. But um, I'm excited, and thank you so much again, and I'm happy to take any questions. 
Thank you, Josh. Um, uh, what's exciting is that these startup companies and the breadth of our 135 members plus uh, act as a nest for these companies is often the term that we use. They're a nest for our startups and entrepreneurs. They also act as a nest and a support mechanism for the development uh, of our workforce pathways that we are supporting uh, the development of. And I'll introduce and invite, um, uh, she has a new title, actually had been the director of the Youth Maritime Collaborative, and Visna is now uh, the director of, of equity engagement, which is encompassing more broad programming around equitable workforce development pathways and our engagement with employers across the sector. Uh, Visna, I hand it to you. Thank you, Joshua. Good afternoon, commissioners. It's great to be here. Um, as Joshua mentioned, my name is Bisa Nahoy, and I'm the new Director of Equity and Engagement. And I'm really excited to talk about our um, achievements with our workforce development programs. Um, I'll go ahead and begin with the Youth Maritime Collaborative. The YMC is comprised of government, educational, and community stakeholders who work together to provide accessible and inclusive um, access points into career and educational pathways. And we do this um, for all youth, but we have a special focus on youth of color and youth from underserved communities, young women, and, um, and low-income youth. And the YMC creates um, career pathways and um, educational pathways through experiential learning events, mentorship, and paid internships. Next slide, please. So as mentioned before, the YMC um, is a group of caring entities. Our partners extend um, all throughout the region, and we meet monthly on the third Thursday of every month to talk about resources and ways to create more accessible access points for um, youth of color and underrepresented youth. We also have our expanded maritime um, collaborative, EMC, and this is a academic, academic year-round program, and we work in partnership with Evergreen Goodwill's uh, Youth Maritime Program um, for a group of 20 to 30 juniors and seniors, and we give them these opportunities to participate um, with uh, our partners, such as Center for um, Wooden Boats and Sound Experience and um, Sea Potential. And these are after-school six-week series um, programs. They get stipends and they get exposure to um, opportunities that many um, have never experienced before and, or it's their first time being on the water. We also have um, currently our Youth Maritime Accelerator Project, YMAP, which is an eight week long internship program. Um, we provide $2,000 stipends for youth who successfully complete the program. And in the mornings, they receive training and upskilling um, based on a nationally recognized curriculum. And in the afternoons, they intern with a maritime employer that we've matched um, with them based on their skill sets and interests. And on Fridays, they um, all come, come together as a cohort and participate in experiential learning events. Um, they go kayaking, they go around the, the sound on the schooner adventures, and they really get that hands-on experience and um, a, a creation of sense of belonging 
uh, being that most of them are from, you know, underserved communities or they um, are exposed for the first time to the maritime industry. What's really great about our programs is that we also provide equity trainings to all of our maritime employers. And these equity trainings are two, um, two are in two part and they're offered um, one and a half hours per day. And they're provided oh, through our partnership with um, Evergreen Goodwill and others. And they're really a great way to introduce new concepts to maritime employers who may have not worked with youth from different um, cultural backgrounds. Uh, we talk about certain scenarios that they may face, um, but we really, at the end of the day, provide these um, positive takeaways for them to build um, great mentorship relationships, to see in advance some of the challenges that could um, uh, rise and how to address them in a positive way. We've gotten great feedback from our maritime employers. Um, they've been a great uh, resource for them uh, throughout these past couple of years that we've been able to um, provide these trainings for them. Today, we just had our first training. Um, so we're just really excited to one, expose um, this great multi-billion dollar industry to a new generation of um, young, capable, um, workers who have really been um, just excluded from opportunities. So we're excited to build that connection. Um, in addition to that, we're excited to provide our employers uh, the tools and resources to advance um, this new generation of um, skilled workers in this industry. Thank you. Thank you, Visna. I'll add that we, you know, Maritable, we are we're not program providers, so to speak, as much as we're program connectors. We often sort of use the term um, uh, logo farmers. You'll see in our slides, we do a lot of putting logos in boxes and bringing them together. And we're that catalyst and we're often just sort of the safe place for folks to collaborate, sort of build relationships, build trust, um, sometimes and often need to be vulnerable, especially as we're doing DEI work in predominantly older white male industry. Um, but we, we find ourselves sort of in a role where we have those relationships built uh, and we can um, hopefully move the needle on a number of those issues. And we're investing now uh, into a number of new different programs in order to do that. And certainly uh, hope to continue to do that in partnership with the port. Uh, next slide. And we'll have opportunities for you know further questions as we go. And we have one of our program managers uh, on as well, uh, Robert Brown, who's delivering program all the time. Um, I wanted to get back to some of our joint innovation projects and large initiatives that we are helping to facilitate. These are a few that uh, are underway. So these are, are functioning and funded joint innovation projects with dozens sort of in the pipeline for us to support, find future fundings, do design charrettes with our members and partners around, uh, as well as a number of sort of large strategic initiatives that we are engaged in. And you see they range from you know building zero emission ferries to uh, building a, uh, a private uh, enterprise-scale 5G network over the Tacoma Tide Flats. We're uh, supporting the coming together of a utility, a startup, a national lab, and engineering firms, and maritime providers uh, to pilot new hydrogen infrastructure. Uh, for zero for decarbonizing maritime infrastructure, uh, we have um, we've built programs along with UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and Discovery Health just to uh, provide uh, resources and tools for COVID response and protection. Um, 
So you'll see that the range, this, the, 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 what's unique about each of these, you see the, the logos that are there, it's the coming together of a whole value chain. If some of our partners go off and, and, and uh, put together a joint venture and go do cool stuff, great. We're, we're there to help connect them and move them along. Where it's hard, where it's tricky, where you need to layer public and private capital, where you need to bring in public and private uh, interests, uh, that's where we come in and have the mechanisms and tools to help facilitate that process. We're engaged in large initiatives like the development of um, uh, our state's goals to become a hydrogen hub with the Pacific Northwest Hydrogen uh, Association that was formed. We're engaged with the port and the Green Corridors uh, program and lots of other national uh, and international initiatives that we're engaged in and help provide some thought leadership. Not that we're, well, Jennifer States is often the smartest person in the room on these things. Um, uh, but it's also that we provide the sort of local perspective that if you're going to take an initiative to get done, you can use a cluster organization and our mechanisms to help accelerate uh, uh, and do it in a sustainable and equitable fashion. Next slide. Other programs that we're supporting, Quiet Sound Program, another initiative that the Port of Seattle has helped jumpstart and be supportive of. Uh, we were participating uh, as one of the early uh, collaborators to design the Quiet Sound Program that came out of the governor's uh, ORCA task force and then we're asked by those partners to uh, be the holder and facilitator of that program. It has essentially its own uh, leadership uh, and um, advisory committee and it's held within our organization. So we staff and provide resources and capacity to that, to that work and organization. Uh, next slide, please. And as we continue to grow, we continue to be a place where our partners, large and small, can come together to advance big ideas and big projects. We were recently successful in being awarded a Build Back Better Phase 1 award from the U.S. Economic De Development Administration. And that gave us the ability to apply for Phase 2 <laughs> and put the bones in place. And we've assembled a group of partners from Eastern Washington to uh, uh, North and South of Western Washington, develop a series of capital projects and programs, upwards of $50 million of projects and programs to help accelerate our blue economy. This is particularly focused on what we call green energy to charge the blue economy. It's everything from the production of uh, to the use of clean fuels and how we support it and uh, how we digitize it uh, and everything from our workforce programs to uh, foster a pipeline of new projects in this area. Next slide. And to, to sort of the earlier points, we're not doing this alone. We're not sort of the only crazy, ambitious cluster organization across the globe doing this work. In any given day, we're partnered, and this is just a sample of those around the globe that we're working with and are working in similar fashions. Um, so we were sort of one of the first and early here in North America to identify the blue economy as a particular sector and where those opportunities were, and then to do it through this cluster organizing mechanism. And we're joined by now hundreds across the globe and support as, as high up as the, as the UN with the um, meeting that just took place in Lisbon last week. Next slide. We we can do any of this. I know early conversations as we were developing Maritime Blue sort of as a mechanism as an organization, it was Joshua sitting in front of the Port of Seattle Commission and many others saying, hey, we're going to build this strategy. Hey, we can do this work. If we just brought the right folks together, we could start accelerating. 
we've just been so fortunate in uh, the support and capacity and the incredible leadership that now our growing team has to provide to this work. Uh, we owe it to their brilliance and like I say, we're often the smartest person in the room and it's not me, it's these other 11 folks that are doing the work every day. Next slide. And of course, the leadership that we have um, across our board and, and many others in, in various different board committees and advisory councils and the various different projects that we have. We're always uh, looking to continue to increase the diversity, uh, certainly of the individuals and also the breadth and the input of what is the blue economy. We have public and private and research institutions and NGOs and tribes all engaged in this work. Next slide, please. And as an organization, we continue to grow. Our board just passed uh, our our our, um, our fiscal year just ended and started anew on the same uh, cycle as the as the state uh, from June to July or July to June rather. And we just passed our next uh, budget, and we are growing again this year. And what started as a sort of a humble support from the Port of Seattle from some programs and our State Department of Commerce matched by some USEDA. Uh, we're now sort of a growing and thriving organization with the operational capacity of just over $3 million with our 12 staff uh, doing this work. And what we recognize always is that there's always sort of room to both grow and manage responsibly and sustainably uh, as we continue to do this work. And I feel very confident from our leadership and our staff that we will continue to do that. And I think that gives us the general overview. I wanted to try and keep it as short as possible so we can engage in questions and, and conversation and get your input. I'll just end again with the Port of Seattle. Certainly the commission and staff have been a tremendous part of from the early idea of what this was going to look like to the logo we were going to use to these programs and projects along the way. Uh, we're grateful for that leadership, grateful for leadership that the port has taken uh, in a common approach. I, I know one of the early maritime breakfasts or economic impact breakfasts we would have, I would stand up there and we had lots of teases about, oh, Joshua has the blues again, this is a cluster what, um, years ago. And I just remarked, um, uh, both Commissioner Hasegawa and Director Metric stood up at our last maritime breakfast and the topic from all of our partners, and everybody who sat at the table, and all those that were sort of recognized for their ex excellence and leadership in this sector are talking about sustainability and innovation and equity. Um, so what we thought would be a good idea, we had sort of envisioned what this could be. I had no idea we would be able to implement as much as we have in the last three now plus years. Um, uh, but uh, here, we, here we stand and we continue to do that work uh, humbly, humbly and graciously. So I'll end there. Thank you, Joshua, and thank you, Josh and Visna, as well, for your contributions to the presentation. I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Fellman, our board member ex officio, uh, to start off the comments and questions. Well, my ex officio status is that I, I'm a non-voting member, so given that we have provided funding to the organization, I can just speak to its uh, merits and in, in growing enthusiasm in the broader community, and I'm greatly appreciative of having that had the benefit of watching it grow over these past several years and uh, and seeing how it really fits into the broader uh, maritime innovation efforts that are going on around the world. And so uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing them as an anchor tenant at the uh, Innovation Center, our remodeled uh, fishery supply building, um, ship supply building. 
and currently they're tenants of ours over there above the Highliner Pub, which is always a important place to do business at Fisherman's Terminal. So I, uh, I just really would say that um, having seen the different uh, participants that have come to be part of the Innovator Program, Innovation Program, the Accelerators, um, it's really quite inspiring. And, and to see this uh, source of talent that's out there, this latent capability, given the environmental and ecological challenges that are facing our, our planet and the ocean in particular, I'm, uh, I'm a little less in despair, having seen the fact that there are folks who are actually making real progress to that end and the fact that the port could be part of this um, inspiration to help uh, nurture these organizations around. It's a lot like the, the effort we uh, heard about earlier today, but with a real focus on, on the maritime, I see this is uh, where there's real growth potential and I appreciate the ability for Josh to put together such a strong team to continue making headway in that end. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Fellman. Any other questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Hasegawa. I just want to express how exciting and consequential the work that Maritime Blue is doing. Um, and um, it has been such a privilege and a joy as a commissioner to be in partnership with Maritime Blue. And it has been um, really, I think, a consequential model for us to see the way that you are approaching transforming the maritime industry. With economic development to understanding, you know, the in interconnectedness of the supply chain to, um, to environmental and sustainability, um, all the components are there. And so I am just here to uplift and celebrate and resource the work that you are doing in such a meaningful and intentional way. Um, I um, also didn't realize that, um, that orca recovery was part of um, what you contribute to. And I saw today that the K-Pod like, affirmatively has its newest member, the first, me the first member born into the pod in over a decade. Um, and so that's just also a moment for celebration. Um, I'm wondering, um, Joshua, in your experience, when I think about the maritime industry, I sort of think about it as, um, cruise ships, um, cargo ships, fishing, and, um, and recreation. And there are different ways to, um, to sort of um, work with the industry players in, in evolving their operations. I'm wondering if there's one that you think um, your work touches the most, or if you think that there's a specific you know, nut that's particularly hard to crack or lessons learned that can be taken and applied other places and what your thoughts are about the industry as a whole. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I've been thinking about that for a decade. Um, you know, we call it the blue economy, which uh, to me and lots of people kind of slice and dice blue maritime ocean in different ways. Um, we define the blue economy by, you know, growing what we call maritime and ocean jobs that we are uh, addressing sort of the climate crisis and supporting 
healthy marine and coastal ecosystems and that we're supporting equitable and resilient communities and sort of that typical three layers of sustainability overlaid over this maritime and ocean space and we call it the blue economy um, that encompasses you know in our region everything from offshore marine energy to mariculture algae and kelp ocean data collection IOT devices for ports and you know innovation fuels of the future infrastructure for for ports and trucking and the like so it's ambitious and broad but they're all quite interconnected and so you know do we have a lot of expertise in particular areas here yes maritime decarbonization and electrification is a huge part of that with our shipbuilding community and sort of the commitments by our um, uh, operators and ports to move that quickly certainly uh, we have a lot of expertise in, in offshore marine energy. We're not necessarily developing as fast as others, but we're developing the technology and knowledge and, and know-how in this region. And the other thing, but, but um, and of course, sustainable fishing uh, and seafood processing, big parts of that. Um, we start to lay in, lay, layer over the expertise we have in advanced manufacturing in this region from aerospace across the maritime industry and of course, digital technology. And so for me, it's, we have some particular areas of expertise and we shop those around to startups and investors and say come here because we have great mentors and companies and opportunities for demonstration and pilot projects. But the exciting part of it is the interconnection where there's sensor technology that's being used in ocean data collection uh, that is going to be pivotal for um, uh, understanding and decarbonizing maritime operations and those technologies haven't crossed over those sectors quite yet but they're ready to right or the expertise in IOT devices and and um, machine learning that can overlay into all sorts of different operations and manufacturing here um, so it's the interconnections of those various sectors that mm -hmm. I think we have particular expertise in to help bring together mm -hmm. yeah Mr. Chuck no I just also want to echo the sentiments that I'm very very excited by all the things that you're doing in particular. I want to call out the One Ocean Accelerator Program. You know, Josh, that I've been very engaged on that one and helping you find uh, good partnerships across the oceans. Uh, and so I'm very excited to see the fruits of that labor uh, and to contribute in any way on that front. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Um, I also just want to echo the words of the previous commissioners who have spoken. Um, you guys are obviously leading the way um, when it comes to um, maritime community engagement and um, sustainability. And so I commend the work that is happening at Maritime Blue. Um, my question is, how has um, the collaborative work um, uh, happen with the Port of Seattle's workforce development initiatives and I'm kind of thinking about um, the Workforce Development Council and so what does some of that regional partnership look like mm -hmm. for you all? Yeah, I could speak to quite a bit about that. I may turn it over to Visna a little bit too. She's working in those relationships every day and then I could I could round out a little bit. Visna, you want to talk about those various partnerships across the workforce system? Yes, thank you, uh, Commissioner Mohammed, for that question. Um, we definitely are working um, in tandem with our regional partners, um, specifically with Ann Avery. Um, she is the Career Connected Learning um, Program Intermediary Leader, 
and she is putting together um, these monthly meetings um, to convene and talk about how we can leverage resources and scale region-wide. Um, and then we're also um, meeting monthly with other organizations, um, specifically with the, the city of Seattle and the, um, I, I know the acronym, <laughs> I just remember the name offhand, um, but it's an offshoot of um, a pilot program that they that they created too as well. And it's a mix of um, program providers, um, training organizations who are also meeting on a monthly basis to talk about resources um, for youth employment. So um, with CCW and Avery, um, and also with, I think it's CCLIA, um, which is convening on a monthly basis as well, along with the King County Workforce Development Council, um, the uh, upcoming roundtables with industry stakeholders um, is something that we're all connected to and look, look forward to working together on um, leveraging resources and coming up with workforce development solutions. Great. Thank, thank you for that um, answer. That's super helpful to just understand. Also, I just um, wanted to see maybe if you guys could elaborate a little bit on some of your recruitment and outreach um, strategies in um, some of our low-income communities, BIPOC communities. There's a huge emphasis, um, even for the Port of Seattle, around this uh, career launch programs. There's a number of pilot programs that are happening, and there is um, a lot of emphasis today on equity and um, reaching out to communities in, in places like South King County. Um, how have you guys been able to reach those communities? Is there strategies around that? Yeah, I'll let Visna and Robert talk about the specifics. We've been really fortunate to provide. I mean, the YMC was designed around how we bring together in order to create help and support pathways, particularly for youth of color and young women into the industry. We were supported with the South King County uh, Fund round one. We've been supported again by round two. We continue that process into our paid internship programs and are certainly um, looking forward and hopeful that uh, we'll be able to work with the port and the new Career Connect uh, program as well through those relationships. But I'll let Visna and Robert talk about the actual outreach and engagement. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll talk briefly and then I'll shoot this over to Robert because he's actually doing amazing work on the ground in the community. Um, but as a equity focus objective that um, we lead with is that we know that the work is difficult and we lead with that challenge. We don't wanna check the box and we don't wanna just find numbers. And with that, um, we believe that relationship building, trust building and um, you know, having open communication with community-based organizations um, really help us to learn what the community needs are. And so I'll go ahead and let Robert speak on some of our recruitment efforts and how we've been able to um, retain our enrollment and get, get young people excited about our programs. Uh, thank you, Isna. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, Robert Brown, uh, Program Manager for the Youth Maritime Collaborative. Um, and uh, I would want to say it's an honor to uh, be here and to hear um, everyone uh, speak in, uh, before me. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, um, it's obviously we go through um, the, the high schools, um, counselors, uh, uh, people who are already connected with students from underserved areas, right? And that's something that I think has been uh, a, a method that has been used and um, overlapped. However, 
uh, we also, um, and me personally, I go into the communities um, and to where these conversations um, historically just haven't taken place, right? So where we see a lot of um, our youth that we um, attend and we um, take, because, it's because they are in um, spots and opportunities um, that don't really get a workforce development or career pathway dialogue going, right? So um, that can be anywhere um, just in the neighborhoods, um, at sporting events, um, at uh, regional um, picnics and potlucks, right? At um, very um, inner city, especially in South King County, uh, cultural events um, that um, there's a partnership, there's camaraderie, there's trust, um, and there is a kind of promise in all of these uh, areas. But what there's not is there's the, not the dialogue um, and there's not the, the bridge of uh, someone who can act as the liaison to showing students um, what the promise is. Um, I go around to communities and I heard it, um, you know, uh, it's not every uh, door you should knock on, but you should know which doors to knock on, right? And that is uh, something that uh, we strive to accomplish um, until um, there is a, um, a, a wholesome uh, motivation for youth in these underserved de demographics to um, come out and learn about uh, jobs in the maritime industry. It really is um, singly handed up, uh, up to me to go in, uh, and use diverse uh, grassroots mechanisms and recruitment efforts um, to supply these youth um, with an internship, but also give them that retentive desire to come back um, and to uh, eventually be placed in a job. Most of the youth um, are lacking the vision um, originally um, from the time that they are just figuring out which um, kind of career they wanna go into or what they wanna do. Um, and so I think um, having those conversations in spots where historically it just hasn't been um, uh, cool or it hasn't been regularly talked about has been a huge contributor to getting students um, onto um, the programs, learning about the programs, onto the boats. Um, we had a, a collective uh, amount of students in our uh, spring break um, program on the Schooner Adventurous um, that was held, I believe, April um, 4th to the 8th. And it's, um, a lot of the students were in uh, uh, Ramadan, right? And so uh, we were able to um, build that partnership, build the trust with the students. Um, and we were able to have them pray um, at a specific time on Schooner Adventurous and make that uh, accessible for them so that they can see, oh, I can come into this community um, with my uh, religion, with my um, culture, and it still be a viable pathway for me. And so I, um, little things like that, right? I can go on and on, but it's, it's having those conversations um, that may have just not generally speaking, historically been uh, brought up to the youth and um, making it okay to bring their differences um, into the maritime industry and still be um, on that accelerating course to um, finding a job, landing a career and feeling that sense of connectedness. Thank you, Robert. Great, thank you, Robert, for that excellent um, answer. Uh, I'll just say, Joshua, and, and to Robert and the rest of the Maritime Blue um, team, that I think you guys have a very unique sort of role that you can play to not only build partnerships between um, individuals in the maritime industries, but I also think even just organizations in places like in South King County, I think um, 
we need more Robert Browns in our community that understand this in the industry well and um, are also uh, know how to navigate uh, this, this really um, industry that so many of our community members have a hard time being able to uh, connect with. Um, there needs to be some real emphasis on career uh, uh, curriculum development and sharing, right? Um, making sure that that information is actually reaching um, communities that are in places like South King County. So I think you guys are leading the way and can, can do a lot more as well. And I just look forward to helping you guys um, expand in any way that we can as, as commissioners. And so thank you for your work and this presentation today. Thank you, I appreciate it. I, I, you know, I guess one thing I might to sort of note and add quickly is um, uh, having sort of been thinking about maritime workforce development and the silver tsunami for more than a decade, we knew a decade ago that this was coming and uh, we didn't do enough. And then the pandemic hit and we literally cannot run our ferries, right? Um, and so now we're in the middle of it. And so, um, you know, often sort of the case is, well, we need, we need 100 youth in jobs right now. Um, and we still have work to do to build the trust, to find and to build those relationships with the communities and with those hundred youth, you know, that they're going to trust to get into a van with Robert and drive to the north side and get on a boat for three days or for three hours. Um, so there's a, still a lot of work to do there, and we have to accelerate at the same time and bring our maritime employers, right, along with us to do that. Um, and so we're committed to do some of that hard work. Yeah, just lastly, I'll just say quickly um, to that to your point around that. It is why it's important that we are thinking really deeply around making investments in in our communities, where it's just not even about the funding. It's not a lack of funding. It's actually this distrust with the industry, and not because people don't want maritime jobs. It's because they don't understand it. And it's such an uphill battle that it's not even the funding, it's the idea of even where do I start? And even for organizations um, who work on workforce development and who serve um, historically disadvantaged communities, it's not the fact that they you know, lack the funding or the capacity to, to do that work. It's like not even knowing where to begin because the industry in itself is very complex, which is why I often talk about having dedicated programs and resources and even staffing to support these ideas that we're, we're pushing forward. Um, but it's, it's not easy. It's a, it's a sort of an uphill thing. So I just wanted to, I'll Appreciate get off my that. soapbox with that. No, thank, you. thank you. <laughs> Before thank you, Brian has his very great experience to share with us, can I have one more crack at this? Commissioner Calkins. Sure. Let's keep it brief. Yeah, I, I just, um, you know, I think the failure of the Seattle Maritime Academy or its challenges is very indicative of the fact that we don't have the pipeline feeding the institutions that actually can provide the certification to create the high paying jobs. And, um, and I, I see that as like, I'm hoping that all these maritime programs are bringing kids through such an institution as a show and tell. And I keep on saying the best video game I ever played was a simulator. And I can't imagine it's not going to light the lights up of kids who otherwise wouldn't have had that exposure. And then similarly, um, well, I'm very much as everybody is uh, impressed by the enthusiasm around Maritime High School. 
by the time somebody wants to take a whole high school class, you've already got them. I am intrigued by this idea of having, you know, being able to take an, an elective in shop class to sort of whet the appetite of somebody who then might want to go and take a summer program or an after school program. And that's what is the relationship with the like the recently expanded poor plus program that does this sort of uh, touching the toe into the water? Uh, yeah, I think that it's an interesting question. I'm going to go ahead that you, you raised a well, point. Well, that question is to Joshua. So can, can we stick to the, I think core plus is a really big topic. Um, and unless it's part of your program portfolio, I think we should, I, I want well, to give just, Steve are, an opportunity taking, to speak to this as well. All I'll say is that it's a time collaborative. Are they getting kids yeah. from this? Is that, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. just see that's connecting these dots. And that's and that's exactly the role of the Youth Maritime Collaborative is to bring together Core Plus and the high school and the Maritime Academy and community-based organizations and the WDCs and have a place where they can convene and plan what it is the appropriate pathways and pipelines might be. And then, of course, we have to go out and fund them, right, and do that work for sure. But that's what that's what we do is are that connective tissue across those multiple programs. Thank you. So I was, my comment was uh, similarly related. First, I want to say that uh, I'm truly impressed by what you've done in three years. Um, so impressed that I'm actually leading up one of the new innovation clusters that's being modeled after what you've done. So if for folks who had an eagle eye, you'll see the logo of the organization that, that is my day job uh, included in that because these innovation cluster programs supported by the Department of Commerce all work together on lots of stuff. and. And I will say that Joshua and his team are often held up as models for the rest of us to say, this is how you do it. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how often I, I cite um, Joshua and his work, the, the notion of the quadruple helix, this idea of bringing in the public and private, the research community-based organization. So uh, truly a benefit for the state of Washington to have uh, Washington Maritime Blue here. And I'm thrilled that um, this is an example of government work that came out of commerce in the port of Seattle that has, you know, that we then uh, very conscientiously spun off to be able to go and, and be agile and thrive, and you have successfully then followed that up with a funding model that's, that's really working. So kudos to you. Uh, on that workforce development piece, I feel like we're living a, one of Aesop's fables, and I forget exactly ex which one it is, but there's one where you know, there's a squirrel that doesn't put away enough nuts for winter, and then all of a sudden winter comes and uh, they aren't prepared, and he goes looking for others who can support him, and here we are, you know, we're, we're the, in the sort of winter of workforce for our ferry systems and other aspects of maritime, and if we had just listened to uh, <laughs> the wisdom and counsel of, of folks 10 years ago, like Joshua saying, we need to prepare for the silver tsunami, and I see it. I mean, you know, we've had a crisis at Seattle Maritime Academy because of uh, the challenge in recruiting in a pandemic to these uh, post-high school programs when there are so many jobs available to young people right now uh, that are exacerbating it. Um, and also the visibility issue. Go back one step in the, in that, in the stream of, you know, potential workforce to Maritime High School where, uh, you know, we're saying, Give us a couple of years, and we're going to have recruits coming out of Maritime High School who are going to be interested in Maritime Academy. But you know, we're we're still a couple of years away from graduates, and and we had discussions early on about Maritime High School, and that 
Maritime High School is not going to be successful if we aren't doing awareness programs for elementary school kids and the after school and extracurricular activities for middle school kids so that by the time they get to eighth grade and they're making a choice about where I'm going to go to school, it'll be an obvious choice for them to go to a school like that. So, yeah, seeing seeing that work that you guys are doing as an umbrella with the Youth Maritime Collaborative to, to be that connective tissue, I think is, um, I just wish it could have been done 10 years ago. So. Thank you for that. And then uh, Executive Director Metric, a few words. Uh, thanks, Commissioner. I, yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to reflect, yeah, Joshua, when we go back, uh, we had those initial conversations about, uh, about the first MOU and the standard of that relationship. I don't think we could have anticipated um, where you would be today. And I think that we discussed that, though, of looking, you know, we talked about building a pie that then would grow in our piece, even though substantial initially would become a smaller and smaller piece of that growing pie, and here we are. You know, and that, so that's what we talked about. So I think this is a great, it's the way we envisioned it, um, uh, but it's gone beyond that. And I think that one of the things, too, is that uh, in ways not anticipated, too. So I think, I'm just going to put out there to the commissioners, I think we need to look at the MOU of where you are today and where we're going in the future and look at that MOU and the relationship because there are some things in where the way it's developed that we have to look at that. And I think we look, we've look we talked about that a little bit, and I think that's something that, that we've talked to, and I think that's something we need to look at that and bring back to the commissioners to consider. And I think the other big thing is is that we're all, especially in these areas, whether it be workforce development, equity, and sustainability, that we have to continue to work on unity of effort. You know, a couple things here. I got some notes I took down here, and I think the other commissioners did too, to make sure we're all rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, because we are going in the same direction, we just need the coherence of that would be is really something for me to, to make sure that we're focused on that. So I think that that really helps us. But I think the things that you've articulated moving forward are really exciting for all of us and that, that we're all moving in the, you know, we're uh, um, simpatico and moving in the same direction on that for sure. But, uh, but anyway, I, I just want to give my personal thanks for that relationship um, going with that and then uh, Commissioner, especially uh, Commissioner Fellman in that involvement and, and Dave McFadden and his, his team as well is working on that as well. So congratulations and I think we're just going to continue going from here. Thank you, Executive Director Metric. Thank you, Joshua. Um, at this time, we're going to move on to our final presentation for the day. Clerk Hart, can you please read the next item into the record, and then we'll hear from Executive Director Metric on introduction. Yes, thank you. This is Agenda Item 11B, bringing access equity to the port's website. Hi, Commissioners. Thank you. I'm Kathy Roeder, the Director of Communications, and I have a real pleasure today to present work done by other people, and that's, um, I'm very proud of it. And I really want to acknowledge Kathy Swift, who's been uh, the leader on my team uh, doing this work along with Laura Smith-Huda, and a lot of great partnership with the Commission Office, which you'll see during the presentation, and also our information and communications and technology team, which has to implement a lot of the coding changes that we'll be talking about. Um, and then there's about 20 other folks around the port who help us maintain our website, and they're constantly updating their own pages, and we're training them to make some of the improvements we'll talk about. Um, just a few things that I do want you to take away from today. I'll say this, and you'll hear me repeat them a few times. Um, we're going to show you some of the changes that we're making and how the website will look different in the future. Um, some will be subtle, but uh, they're important, so we want to draw attention to them. 
also want uh, you and the public and all of my colleagues to hear that this is part of a port-wide culture change that puts equity and access first. And it's a big shift to think about not just how does it look, but how does it get used and how to do that from an access perspective, both ADA accessibility, but also language accessibility, being clear, being concise, having simple design. Um, so that's a big piece of this. Um, and also just understanding our approach, which is that um, access benefits everyone. We all benefit from clear design, simple writing, whether or not you think you need assistance. So that's the intro and there, it's a briefing, not action. Uh, you've already taken the action by approving our 2022 budget, which funded the people and software that makes these changes and there will be um, action item, there will be budget in our 2023 for more. So next slide, please. Um, on July 26th, we will celebrate the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, the port will celebrate, mark this moment with um, advertisements about accessibility services at the airport, which are really popular with travelers, social media blog, and uh, social media and blog posts. We have mostly for the last couple of years been focusing on built environment. Um, but what you're gonna see in our presentation today is that for the last 12 months, we've been really increasing our emphasis on digital access. And so I'm gonna turn it over to Michelle to start there. Oh, actually, I'm gonna do one more and then turn it over to Michelle. So um, on, on this page, you see just a couple bullets on the reasons why someone might need accessibility services and the tools that they would use. In a later slide, Michelle is gonna show you what those actually look like. So you have a sense of the user experience. Um, but I've, I did mention this before that what was a really big insight for me as our team went through this process was focusing on cognitive impairment, which hadn't really occurred to me as a disability issue that our team should be thinking about. Um, but the level of complexity in both the topics that we address and also in how we present them is something that I think overall our organization really needs to be cognitive of. Um, and there's a lot of different cognitive impairments that um, being more clear and easier to understand would be important for us. So now I'll hand off to Michelle. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, for the record, Michelle Hart, Commission Clerk. Kathy, I'll speak with you um, further in a few minutes about the second element of the report today, which is accessibility review of the main ports website. The Commission Meeting Portal is a third-party hosted site um, in use by the port for many years, um, and it's the first element of the report that we'll discuss with you here today. The enhancements to the site will show you, um, the enhancements to the site that we will show you today have been a work in progress over the past few years, and they provide access and functionality that never existed before. So in addition to ADA accessibility, you'll also see new features and site functionality for the commission meetings portal, um, like language translation of commission meeting documents and video transcripts, as well as video clipping and sharing functionality, uh, which I've actually used several times now myself. It's yeah. pretty cool. Um, slide three that we're looking at here um, shows a listing of disabilities and assisted technologies to provide access opportunities like Kathy discussed. And these are in focus with this project, um, but what does it all look like and how does it feel to need and to have to use these tools and then um, to either have them available to you or to not have them available to you. So um, when we go to slide four, I'm sorry, that's my phone. 
Thank you, Aubrey. Um, slide four that you're looking at is actually the homepage for the Commission's meeting portal. And I know that it's really small up there on the screen. Um, it has a lot of text. This site is very, very text heavy. Um, and we will play a video for you here um, of the site with the tools that are now available. So we get to actually, like Kathy said, see that user experience and feel that user experience. Before we start the video, I have a couple of caveats for it. Um, it is very much an instructional video, so it looks and it sounds like an instructional video. Um, that video is available on the meeting's website for public access and information. And because the video is a recording over an assisted technology demonstration, um, you'll see a couple of disclaimers pop up about midway through the video saying exactly that. Um, that poor audio is captured due to that overlay of the recording over the assisted technology demo. Uh, but rest assured that that um, technology actually works completely fine um, without the recording of the demo. And then finally, the first slide of the video you see does not have sound. Um, it will be displayed long enough for you to read the text for your information and for your thoughts. There's some pretty good statistics there that I think are pretty enlightening. Um, so let's see the accessibility and other design enhancements to the meetings portal. Go ahead, Aubrey. And then this slide will talk to you about um, the accessibility highlights that we'll be talking about as well as the other highlights. Vision impairment, blindness, physical disabilities, cognitive disabilities. A sighted user sees navigation tools, an announcement, a list of meetings with many links, and informational areas throughout the page. How might a visually impaired user see it? A user with some color blindness and mild vision impairment would experience something similar to this. Skip menus allow tabbing directly to areas of interest on the page. With screen settings, the user may choose the combination of contrast and font that best suits their particular vision circumstance. When mouse or keyboard use is impossible, assistive technology allows easy navigation and selection of a particular meeting. No keyboard is needed to get to a meeting page. The same technology can be used to navigate the meeting page. Full video control with or without a mouse or keyboard. Visually impaired users can navigate the site, but what about blindness? How does a blind visitor use the meeting portal? Let's go to the site without vision. The meeting portal is actually displayed right now. 
Without screen reader consideration in the page design, every word, link, image, and menu item will be robotically spoken aloud. The meeting's page took nearly 10 minutes to read. The user would then be forced to tap through the page hoping that there is an identifiable link to what they're looking for. The screen reader provides an elements list so that the user can listen to how the page is laid out. But even this is of limited value if the links are all labeled the same. Scrolling through a list of 50 or 60 meetings, all with the same label would be quite useless. Proper design changes all that. The new meeting portal clearly labels each element for the screen reader. The links describe everything needed for easy selection of what they're looking for. With proper design, all other aspects of the page become accessible to a blind user as well. On the meeting page, we will immediately skip to the video, begin play, and adjust the volume. Within about 3 seconds, a blind user can find, start, and adjust a video. This is Commission President Ryan Calkins convening a special meeting of May 10th, 2022. The time is 9.03 a.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port Seattle Headquarters building at Pier 69 and virtually via Microsoft Teams. This is a commission study session on 2022 Cruise Environmental Strategy. Present with me today. Playback speed and read-along transcript assists users with attention or cognitive disabilities, allowing them to watch or repeat the video at a speed that they are comfortable with. Attendance today. Just a couple of housekeeping items for any attendees and commissioners. For anyone attending teams, please don't need to speak. It's also a background noise for you. This meeting is currently set up for 11 a.m. Also, as this is a study session of the commission, today's format does Google Translate continues to be used to translate the meeting portal, but has never been able to translate PDF files. We have converted most PDF files to an HTML equivalent for more accessibility to language translation, as well as visually impaired users, and will continue with new events. Conversion does have its pitfalls however. The print-oriented nature of a PDF is not a one-to-one -one equivalent in HTML. Character and graphic positioning continue to be improved to be more presentable for a web browser. PDFs are not available for translation or visually impaired users. The user may choose to view the HTML version of meeting documents. The meeting document is now translated and visually accessible. The use of color, the precise placement and spacing of characters on a PDF create many challenges when converting to the structured nature of HTML. Those challenges continue to be addressed and improved. The new meeting portal provides mechanisms to provide rich format information for standard news feeds such as Google and Yahoo News. It also provides a standard format used by calendar applications and news aggregators. This news application follows the meeting portal RSS feed. These unread items show relative information about the meeting or event. Up-to-the-minute updates can alert the user of new and changed events on their device. 
Upcoming events can be added to the user's calendar with the same information as the news feed. Video clips of each agenda item, or custom timestamps can be downloaded. A meeting, or portions of it, can be shared via email, Twitter, Facebook or pasted into any other application. Each page of the new meeting portal has been redesigned to provide as much relevant information as possible on a more compact mobile device. Changing the orientation by rotating the device provides more visibility of commission meeting information. Thank you, Aubrey. That's the end of the video there. Um, again, none of these features or access enhancements were available prior to this, this project rollout. Um, a huge takeaway for us in, in going through this project with our site host um, and designer is how important the file naming standardization is for all of this, um, as well as proper document and site design. It, it is key to accessibility, whether that is ADA accessibility or whether that's language translation. Um, so we really do need to focus on those elements as we move forward with equity access. Um, in our digital world. And um, it's easy to understand after watching the video how difficult the meeting site in particular would be um, for anyone with a temporary or permanent disability uh, without the proper structure and tools in place to be able to use them and navigate through that site and to access the port's information. Um, so again, this is just um, a, a little bit of a user experience as to the overlay that we're looking at overall with the tools that are needed and the design that's needed. And while the, techno the technology is not perfect, um, we now meet Washington State web access standards um, and usability will continue to improve as the technology improves. Before I pass it back to Kathy, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our partners at Seattle College's Cable Television. This is SEC TV. Um, Tom, Greg, Dean, and Rich, um, Port of Seattle Commission meetings have actually been supported by SEC TV since at least 2008, so quite some time. Um, they work behind the scenes, and I'm going uh, to take a, just a moment to tell you who they are. SEC TV is focused on educational-based television. They stream, they live stream and archive our commission meetings and are the creators and caretakers of the commission meetings portal. They provide production services for education and community-based projects and receive no state or college funds for any of their operations. Um, they are contribution and service to fee-based only, uh, so we're very lucky to have them under our contract. The SEC TV uh, team is directly credited with the accessibility redesign of the meetings portal that we've seen today, um, and we appreciate our partnership with them. So thank you, SEC TV. And Kathy, back to you. Yes, we also benefit from SEC TV, so thank you. Um, okay, next slide. And I know it's it's a long day, so I'm going to cruise through. So we're pivoting now to the external site, uh, which was a different animal than the meetings page because we have so many different kinds of content, like um, pay your mortgage, web forms, check your flight, reserve your parking, images, plus PDFs, which, as you've heard, are a big problem. So in order to assess how our main website was performing, we did hire an outside firm, um, Open Doors, we can go to the next slide, Open Doors organization to help us with an audit uh, to look at our site against the current Washington State Standard of Web Content Accessibility Guidelines 2.1. And the audit was both an automated software review, but also the 
they um, connect with a firm called Abler.com that has real people with disabilities go through and experience your site. We can go to the next slide, which tells you uh, the one prior to that, which shows uh, essentially the outcomes of our site the, the, or our audit. The really good news is we didn't have any blockers, which are critical issues that make the website unusable. But you can see we have a lot of critical and serious issues. I'm going to show you some quick examples of those. Um, our site is highly templated, so we make one change. It makes a lot of changes, but some of them, if we go to the next slide, we have tens of thousands of them, and that's pictures. Our site is really heavily image driven, and that's always been something we're very proud of, is that people love to look at port facilities, and we, we know that our photography is very popular, but for someone who has a vision impairment, um, you need to make sure you're accurately t labeling images to assisted navigation. Otherwise, it's just image, image, image image and you've really wasted somebody's time. So we need to go through every single picture on the website and label it uh, so that we can tell a screen reader, skip it, it's just decorative. Or this is important, it's a map, it's an infographic, it provides contextual information. And so when I refer to the 20 people who are working really hard on the website across the port, this is a big part of what they're doing right now is updating those images to make people's experience more efficient. Uh, we can go to the next slide. So that was an easy example. This is a slightly more complex example. We thought these orange headers were really cute when we designed the site a couple years ago. They're out of order in terms of the way somebody would experience the site using a site reader. They also um, don't have, uh, they're not coded. They're like caption overlays. They're not coded properly so that somebody could um, use an ARIA reader, which is more complicated than really, those are just words. I don't really know what they mean. Um, but this is a more complicated problem because we can fix the ordering of the headers, but it requires a code change to address the captions. So it's something that we have to pull in ICT to work on. And then if you go to the next slide, this is an example of a complex problem, which is we designed our site heavily around carousels on the main page, the home page, and then section headers because we love having all of our good news front and center and we often have so much news. But these are completely unusable for screen readers. So we basically have to change design of the site. So that's a more complex problem. So those are some examples. We can go to the next slide. Uh, so we're underway right now with the alt tags for labeling images. As you heard, PDFs are very problematic and I hope Adobe just fixes this quickly. Um, but we have to go back to every PDF and make changes and we need to start thinking about PDFs of the future. Um, particularly for things like annual reports that have a lot of tables and images in them. They don't Connect, they don't convert cleanly to HTML um, and fixing headline hierarchy. Next slide. In 2023, we'll be really focusing on code changes and partnering with ICT on that. Um, this is not the end of the project, as I mentioned before. This is a forever thing. We really just have to change the approach. Think about when we create documents originally, are we creating them the right way? We know that there will be a new web standard in a year. There will be better assistive technologies and our website will have to be responsive to them. So we're four years old. We'll probably be coming to you with a new website money in a couple of years anyway. Um, and that'll be a really great opportunity for us. So thank you. Thank you both. And thanks for um, being so concise too. It's a very important and big topic. Uh, so commissioners, who would like to start off? Commissioner Hasegawa. Is it mobile friendly? It's uh, better, yes. Uh, the site is mobile responsive, and uh, but I think we can, that's a place we can continue to improve. 
And mobile enhancements have been made to the commission meetings portal. My last question is for the translated commission meeting agenda, or maybe that was minutes. Does that only happen if um, a member of the public requests that it be translated and then it be uploaded, or is that a default practice for it Spanish? And if so, then are there any other languages that will be translated into Yes, through the commission president to Commissioner Haskawa. Um, yes, actually, all of the languages um, through our translation tool um, are available. Um, all of the documents are available in accessible document format. That's a new link that's on the meetings portal. Um, so that can be accessed through that link and then the language selected. Um, going back to, uh, I know what's, what's key, you know, what's really bubbling to the top of all of this is the language translation tools and the ADA tools are only as good as the way that we construct our documents. So it's going to be the code that's written behind the language translation tools. So if I pull open an agenda or a video transcript now is available or any of our documents that we've converted to HTML, they'll automatically convert into that HTML format through the database and through that conversion. They're all available. A person just needs to go in and select the language that they're looking for. But that translation or that ADA accessibility is only going to be as good as our document construction or as our site construction. So we need to look at how we're actually creating things. Commissioner Feldman. Michelle, what a huge undertaking. And thank you so much for stewarding this project. It's a, a daunting task. And, um, and the progress that's being made and the thoughtfulness that's going into it is truly extraordinary and a great expansion of our welcoming port goals. And uh, I'm deeply appreciative of that. I, I just want to make sure of one thing, though, is for years before coming a commissioner and attending commission meetings, I would um, often complain about the difficulty of accessing the agenda through my MacBook. And, uh, and then I think there was a challenge with uh, iPhones. And I think you know, of all the accessibility issues, this is still for a sighted hearing person with just a different platform. And I don't know um, whether there's been any uh, progress on that. Because I recently had some, some occurrence. I forgot what that was. But has this been addressed? It, through the commission president to Commissioner Fellman, yes, it has been addressed. Um, so on the, the mobile aspect of things, um, it works with both phone types, Android, um, as well as iPhone, um, and then on other mobile devices. So it'll now flip, it'll now readjust size, it'll now you can open up the links straight from the agenda, I think is what you're asking about. I can't speak so directly to a MacBook, um, but I mean, let me know how it goes. And if I need no, to follow I think, up, I, I will. Think it could be the user. hot links yeah. through, the, through the phone, fantastic. Continue your great work. Appreciate it. You bet. Commissioner Cho. Yeah, I just want to uh, comment on how remarkable this work is. And quite honestly, I'm kind of blown away by the level of granularity. Um, to be candid, some of this work seems very tedious. And so I really want to commend the staff who are working on this right now, who have to go through every photo and tag it so that people know exactly what the photo says or is. Um, and I, I also want to highlight, like, um, Oftentimes, people's first impression of the Port of Seattle is our website. 
Uh, and so the fact that we are going to these lengths uh, to make our website equitable really speaks to how our culture and how our priorities have changed over the years with the equity uh, lens. Uh, and so I want to give a huge shout out to you all as well as Bukta and everyone else who has really uh, taken this seriously. And I think this is a huge testament to, to how much we've how far we've come and how far we're willing to go. So thank you so much. Commissioner Mohammed. Um, yeah, I just want to also echo the words of um, my colleagues. This is really great work, and as you all know, um, in my other role, I'm the director of the Office of Immigrant and Refugee Affairs, and for a number of years have seen, uh, overseen language access teams. This is a heavy lift, and it is work that both the county and the city of Seattle is working on, and I think there's a lot of like best practices out there and learnings. Um, both of those agencies have invested a lot of money into it, and um, have also found that, you know, um, you got to do things over again, the, you know, the drop and drag uh, tools are, are very challenging to like navigate. And so um, there's platforms like SmartCat and SmartLink that make those processes easier. And so um, however we can have some regional collaboration around that, I think would be also important. But thank you for your work. Uh, the only comment I would add is I think uh, this does represent an enormous amount of work, but I think there are some benefits that you haven't even highlighted here, which is just helping people to find the website in the first place. And every time somebody labels an image, it becomes easily, more easily searched by the search engines and other mechanisms by which people find our website in the first place. So that can be both beneficial to, you know, as a business trying to attract customers or trying to provide great customer service, just getting to our website in the first place and the right part of our website you know, these efforts will make that easier too. So um, I, I think, uh, fear not, this is well worth the effort, even though it is a gargantuan task. So um, any other thoughts from the presenters? Okay, we'll keep up the good work. Thank and, you, Thank you uh, very much. Executive Director Metric, anything on that one? Just on this, thanks, thanks, uh, President Calkins. Just want to thank uh, Michelle and Kathy and the whole team for working on this. And really, when I saw this, just the the width, the width and breadth of this, and how deep this has to go into the organization, and and how much uh, of reflecting of all, everything that we do, I greatly appreciate all that work. And the, the shout out to the team too from uh, SCC TV. Yeah, now they're right behind the commissioners, right? Yes, they are. There's part Actually, of the they're team behind there, back there, unseen back there. Thank you. Can I, can I add just one more thing? I also just learned that um, Dean, that is with SCTV, has been with the Port Commission since 2007 and has only missed one Port Commission meeting. So I, shout I out to Dean back, <laughs> back there. <laughs> That's got to be Pete. I don't know if it would be inappropriate to give them a round of applause. Yeah, maybe they can, yeah, maybe they can come out here before we transition off mr. Commission president I would just like to say that um, the Commission meetings portal has been a project in the background for three years so it, is, it has taken that long in the time that you know the the site host and the project team has had to work on that to pull that together um, the work in front of, of you know the the port with respect to the main website um, will be a heavy lift Thank you all. All right, that concludes our scheduled business items today. Are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? Yes. Okay, so bear with me a little bit. I do have um, something that I want to share around North Sea Tech Park. 
Um, I just want to, um, we've heard a lot from the community around North SeaTac Park, and I just want to say that North SeaTac Park is a, an important community asset. Um, as someone who lives in South King County, I value North SeaTac Park and what it provides for our airport community that's open space, recreational land, and um, the trees in that park protect the community from air pollution and the list goes on. Um, that said, I have some serious concerns about North Sea Tech Park and its current condition. Um, last month during the Port Commission budget retreat, I shared that one of my budget priorities for 2023 is an ecological risk assessment of North Sea Tech Park, the entire 200 acre area. Um, I want to see an investment in a uh, ecology assessment that informs us about the consequences of invasive um, species in the forest. Um, I would like to also assure everyone in the public that there is no development planned for North SeaTac Park um, in the Port of Seattle's real estate uh, strategic plan or as part of any port related development um, being proposed. Um, also, I would like to say that the port has made significant investments in the park through the uh, Green City partnership with uh, Forterra. The port has made similar investments in open space uh, areas um, in Burien, Des Moines, um, those cities have also responded with investments of their own. Um, it's also important for the public to know that North SeaTac Park property is leased to the city of SeaTac. The lease agreement requires the city of SeaTac to maintain the majority of the property. Um, the park maintenance is the responsibility of the city. Um, I have toured the park and have seen firsthand that it's full of invasives. Um, I've participated in efforts to remove the ivies from the trees. It is clear that the park needs help. Again, I have serious concerns about the health of the park and I'm looking forward to working with the city of SeaTac on addressing this issue. We have been um, engaged, having um, engaging conversations with the city of SeaTac about, about North SeaTac Park both at the elected official level and with um, senior staff at both agencies. And we're looking forward to a productive partnership with the city. Um, the city and the port have regular meetings. The next uh, meeting is um, next week, actually, as part of our uh, joint advisory committee. Um, we have an interlocal agreement with the city of SeaTac and um, North SeaTac Park is going to be on the top of the agenda. Um, I intend to ask the city what they have done to follow up on the Green City's plan and what their plan is to maintain the park. North SeaTac Park is a community asset. It is clear it needs help and we are looking forward to a strong partnership to advance the health of the park. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Commissioner Fellman. Well, I wasn't uh, planning on speaking to North SeaTac Park, but I am interested in knowing what the next step is in that process, given the amount of community engagement we've had in that. So I would perhaps we can get an update on that in the future. I did. Uh, I just couldn't let uh, Commissioner Hasegawa make the only claim about the presence of the 
new cat in, in, in K-Pod. First in 11 years, we also have the first calf of J-Pod in two years. But, um, the, but the, the really the, the key thing is that this population is still smaller than it was when listed in 2005 on the Endangered Species Act. So uh, with 75 whales, even when we have a couple of, a couple of new ones, it's, uh, it's still in tough shop. And the Department of Fish and Wildlife Service just announced that 13 of our resident whales are what you call vulnerable, one of which is vulnerable because it's uh, pregnant, which is a good thing, but the rest are in poor body conditions. So any of you boaters out there, please give them space. Um, it's a totemic species that we want to keep around. So thank you very much, Commissioner Hasegawa, for reminding me to say something. Thank you, Commissioner Fellman. Any further comment? No. Uh, Executive Director Metric, any comments? Uh, nothing further, Commissioner. All right, and uh, I'm going to take Chair's prerogative and just say, if you have not had an opportunity to look at the images coming back from the James Webb Telescope, please take a moment tonight and look at them. They will uh, astound you and remind you that all of this is just minuscule compared to the, the grandeur of the universe. And so fear not, uh, this will all pass away. Dust to dust, um, we're all made of stars. And with that, hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned at 4.08 p.m.